try to turn around, but her car stalled at the worst possible moment, leaving the black family stranded in the middle of a white mob at the street corner where the warfare had started four days before. Alvin got out of the car to help her sister restart the Cadillac. Don't shoot, don't shoot, Alan pleaded, her hands in the air. She was shot down. Then dozens of people began firing at the car. Stay down, Alan's father cried, as his wife and daughter threw themselves to the car's seats and floor. The shooting continued until Charlie Robertson, who had chanted white power with the same mob the night before, appeared with three other cops. Dixon's car had been completely destroyed, its chassis bullet-torn and its windows shattered. It was a miracle that everyone in the car survived with only a few minor injuries and shards of glass in their hair. Alan was taken to the hospital at 9.30, and she died 20 minutes later from the gunshot wound in the right side of her chest. Robert Messersmith, who shot Sweeney and Washington four days before, and whose father was rumored to be the grand giant of the York County Ku Klux Klan, bragged that he tore Alan in half, the force of his bullet blowing her out of her shoes. One of Alan's sneakers came off when she hit the ground. Messersmith reportedly took it home as a trophy. Officer Robertson kept the promise he had made to the white gang members— though his next moves also followed the usual pattern of York's police response to black victims of white violence. He and the other officers did not confiscate weapons or make arrests. They simply sent the crowd, the witnesses, home after Allen's murder. Instead of an investigation, authorities reacted to Allen's death by deploying 600 National Guardsmen armed with carbines— they rolled into York in their jeeps and an armored personal carrier to support the 147 state and city police officers already on duty. Over the following week, the guardsmen mainly helped local police raid homes in a search for guns and ammunition. In the black neighborhood of Penn and College, the police searched eight homes, confiscating ten rifles, shotguns, and revolvers. In the Newberry Street area, the police seized 15 guns, an assortment of military-grade weapons ranging from rifles with scopes to 12-gauge pump-action shotguns and hundreds of rounds of ammunition. This veritable arsenal was found at the Messersmith home. With both sides disarmed, at least partially, the war in York seemed to wind down. Unlike nearly every other city that experienced rebellion— York eventually achieved a semblance of closure. In 2000, a wave of prominent civil rights-era murders were brought to trial when white people started telling investigators the truth about what had happened in the 1960s, including the killing of civil rights leader Medgar Evers in Mississippi and the murder of four little girls in the bombing of a Birmingham church, both in 1963. After a series of local news stories in 1999 that commemorated the 30-year anniversary of the York Rebellion and raised new questions about the unsolved murders of Lily Bell Allen and Henry Shad, York County District Attorney Stan Rebert launched a grand jury investigation. The process of reopening old case files and re-interviewing witnesses uncovered new evidence that led to the arrest of 10 white men for Allen's murder.
most pled guilty and received no jail time in exchange for testimony against gang leaders Gregory Neff and Robert Messersmith, who were given four-and-a-half to ten-year and nine-to-nineteen-year sentences, respectively. The two black men charged with Shad's killing, Leon Wright and Stephen Freeland, received identical sentences. Both sides of York's war had received justice, it appeared. Yet former officer Charlie Robertson walked free, acquitted of murder charges. At the time of his trial, Robertson was serving his second term as York's mayor. The white power proponent had risen, over the course of his career, to the very top of the local power structure. The primary story officials and the press told about the racial warfare in York, Cairo, and other cities was that groups of black and white residents alike had descended into lawlessness. Both sides held extreme views, both sides were racist, and both sides attacked the other. Another view was simply that the problems were overstated and black fears were thus not rooted in reality. As Illinois Lieutenant Governor Paul Simon put it, the White Hats, or the Committee of Ten Million, have become a source of fear for the black community. But he concluded that this fear appears to be largely unwarranted. Simon visited Cairo for two days in mid-April, 1969. He spoke with mothers, children, and grandfathers in pyramid courts who told him about the White Hats and what happened on March 31st when the vigilantes shot into the housing project for two and a half hours, setting off Cairo's continuing violence. The White Hats, however, made an impressive show of victimhood, ultimately convincing Simon that the group had nothing to do with the attack. Someone called in a threat on Peyton Burbling's life during Simon's first night in Cairo, and the lieutenant governor was summoned to the white supremacist's home at 11 at night. Burbling had resigned from the White Hats in November 1968, when he was elected state's attorney. He said, there might be a conflict, but he continued to serve the cause from his new perch. Now Brebling was in danger, or so he wanted Simon to believe, and he had the lieutenant governor's ear. Simon left their hour-long conversation, persuaded that law and order must be restored in pyramid courts. As with the white gangs of York, support from authorities and law enforcement only emboldened the White Hats, the Saturday after Simon's visit, April 26th, Burbling issued warrants for raids on three Pyramid Court's apartments in search of guns and explosives. This was a calculated move on the state attorney's part. Burbling timed the searches to coincide with the third Saturday protest in support of the black boycott of white-owned businesses, where hundreds of people carried signs, some of which read, Don't buy from white merchants downtown. Spend your money where your soul brother benefits. The police did not discover any weapons in pyramid courts that day. Some protesters returned from the picket line to discover their homes ransacked, forcing them to piece together or simply throw away already meager family possessions and leaving those who dared to challenge the white power structure and their families humiliated. Then, Cairo burned. In the four days following the raids that Burbling orchestrated, the city witnessed an unprecedented total of 28 fires, 
mostly in the Pyramid Courts area, including in the tavern United Front members frequented near St. Columba Church, and in the vacant building that had served as the Black High School before integration was enforced in 1967. Intermittent firebombing persisted through May, as did gunshots aimed at the police station, the United Front offices, and Pyramid Courts. Neither side claimed responsibility for the violence. Both sides believed they were acting in self-defense. By mid-June, with no end in sight to the sniping and firebombings absent a major intervention, state authorities moved to shut down the White Hats. The Illinois legislature passed a bill repealing an 1885 state law that permitted the formation of vigilante groups to apprehend horse thieves, incendiaries, and other felons. Under the threat of injunction, the White Hats officially disbanded. Yet, as co-founder Thomas Madra pledged, we'll continue whether or not the governor signs it. Within a week, Madra and others in Cairo's white establishment organized another rally in St. Mary's Park, where the vigilante group resurfaced in a new guise. Modeled more directly than the White Hats had been after citizens' councils, the United Citizens for Community Action, also called UCCA, purported to be focused on community cooperation, not repression. The group's informal nickname, the United Coon Control Association, suggested otherwise. UCCA leadership was comprised of prominent former White Hats members, Captain Jerry Lebo, the commander of the Illinois National Guard in Cairo, Carl Helt, who owned Cairo News and Music Company and had just been named the editor of the Tri-State Informer, the white supremacist organ of the Citizens' Councils, whose slogan was States' Rights, Racial Integrity, business owner Alan Moss, and the Reverend Larry Potts, who in 1968 had killed a 73-year-old disabled black man he claimed to have caught raping his wife and who had been absolved of all charges by the coroner's jury. Most of the White Hats became UCCA members, and more than a thousand new people joined, bringing the forces of white vigilantism in Cairo to a reported 2,000 people in total, in addition to denouncing racist blacks, an oft-used charge against black people fighting for equal rights that increasingly became part of white rhetoric post-civil rights and that fueled animosity and vigilantism, the UCCA pledged to find solutions to present problems and set goals for community development by uniting the responsible citizens of Cairo. This was a far more expansive vision than the Protect Your Homes organizing principle of the White Hats, the UCCA also soon boasted connections well beyond Cairo. In the fall of 1969, after a meeting with white supremacist leaders in Jackson, Mississippi, the group joined the larger Citizens' Council of America movement. Even though most of the violence in Cairo took place in pyramid courts and was carried out by whites, many white residents felt as though their lives and livelihoods were in jeopardy. We will use every force necessary to put an end to the five months of violence the United Front has inflicted on Cairo. Bob Cunningham, the prosperous lumber dealer and the founder of the White Hats, who now led the UCCA, announced. Violence, in this sense, is best understood as any action that challenged white supremacy, including nonviolent demonstrations or armed self-defense. 
The United Front was nothing but a half dozen Negro hoodlums and liars, Cunningham said. A woman who worked at Mark Twain Cafe, where the UCCA elite frequently gathered to eat catfish and socialize, shared her customers' sentiments. I'd like to meet him with a machine gun. It's going to end up with a civil war, she told a reporter. The small concessions made by the state toward black residents had given the latter too much power, and the tax-paying, law-abiding, responsible citizens of Cairo, as the UCCA described its membership, would fight to defend their rule. The idea that lawlessness on both sides was responsible for the violence in American cities in this era was based on a more fundamental assumption— that there was no reason to end the domination of political and economic institutions that systematically locked black people out of jobs, decent housing, and educational opportunities. These beliefs were widely held by whites, and for black activists already facing a daunting situation, the presence of white vigilante groups made for an even graver challenge— in Cairo, York, and elsewhere, black activists and militants devised a new set of strategies and responses to protect the community and to fill the void created by the racist establishment by providing clothing, shelter, medical care, and other basic necessities to black people. The United Front of Cairo, in particular, was successful in both aims. It synthesized the strategies of the civil rights movement— nonviolent, legal, direct-action challenges to discrimination with the principles of self-determination and black nationalism that guided the black power movement. The United Front rooted its politics in a radical reading of Christianity. Its symbol, a pistol overlaid on a Bible, brought together the spiritual groundings of the civil rights movement with the politics of armed self-defense espoused by the organization's black power contemporaries. The gun was for your protection, and the Bible was for your direction. As United Front member Clarence Dossier put it, the organization derived its purpose from the parable of the sheep and the goats from the book of Matthew, in which Jesus calls his followers to feed the hungry— clothe the naked, house the needy, administer unto the sick, take in strangers, and visit those in captivity. By 1970, the Front had created a food distribution network with the Urban League and other sympathetic supporters in Chicago who would send tons of canned goods, medical supplies, household items, clothing, and toys down to Cairo on trucks donated by Sears, Roebuck & Company, and the Montgomery Ward Department Store. The United Front offered Cairo residents free legal aid services and limited medical care. It established a daycare center, a pig farm, a factory that made prefabricated housing, a woman's clothing store, and a grocery store, all based on the principles of collective ownership. Profits were shared with the community in order to distribute wealth equitably. As longtime local civil rights leader and United Front founder Charles Cohen preached at an organization rally, this work was larger than Cairo. It was part of a broader movement to replace the white value system, capitalism, with a system based on cooperation and community. It was clear the state would not guarantee black residents protection or rights, and it would not respond to their basic needs. 
it's up to us. At the center of the United Front's activities during the ongoing conflict in Cairo was its boycott of white merchants. Because they were outnumbered and outgunned by the police and white vigilantes, withdrawing from the city's economy was one of the most potent responses black Cairoites could mount. In just over a year, 11 white-owned businesses closed as a result of the boycott, sending the town, which was already struggling, into an even deeper depression. The boycott would have been successful without the rallies and the picketing, but the United Front believed direct action fostered solidarity, empowerment, and love in a community under siege. Marching in the streets and seeing downtown stores fold one after another allowed every participant to understand their collective power. Together, they were renouncing racism and terrorism, declaring that the old system of oppression was no longer acceptable— White property owners rejected black freedom just as forcibly, sacrificing themselves in the process. The white businessmen are willing to put up with the hardships for their own racism. United Front spokesman Manker Harris observed. Before long, the United Front's Saturday demonstrations were a major weekly event in Cairo and determined the basic functioning of the city. Each demonstration would begin in St. Columba Church, where Cohen and other activists would speak to the participants, usually about a hundred or so in total. We are looking forward to the day we will change society, Cohen would say. We will either change society or die, and it will change anyway. When white people first fired their guns into the Pyramid Court's housing project in March 1969, something brought us together— Cohen would remind the group of that terrifying, clarifying moment. It was the will to live, the will to walk around in the open. When the community mobilized against the violent conditions, things changed. Then we really started loving one another. We began to understand that if I got shot, you could get shot. We began to watch out for one another. Protecting Black Cairo meant not only keeping a rifle in the home and meeting people's basic needs for food, clothing, and shelter, but also marshalling collective power to boycott and picket racist businesses. Energized by the rally, the pickets would march downtown, where groups of white residents awaited, standing on sidewalks and leaning on storefronts, State and local police would array themselves at intersections, blocking traffic to allow the march. A patrol car would follow the marchers, who would be surrounded by hostile white residents and further police. Yet they marched every week. They would march as UCCA leader Carl Helt blasted awful noise at the demonstrators from a loudspeaker he installed at his Cairo News and Music Company. Helt would put on a laugh track or excerpts from speeches by former Alabama Governor George Wallace. Cunningham, the lumberyard owner, might follow the marches and record anything the participants said. If a white person spoke to any black person directly, it was almost surely Cunningham. How you doing, boy? he would call out. White children would shout at the marchers, and black children among the pickets would shout back. United Front representatives, very often the parents of the children, would scold them. What's the matter with you? Get back in line. She started it. She called us a bunch of... Talk never hurt anybody. 
The three-mile march would end back at St. Columba Church, where protesters would clap their hands and stomp their feet in the pews. Most of the people at the rallies and in the streets were young, but a few older people could be found, such as the aged black woman sitting in an aisle seat and supported by her cane, who would tap her blue sneakers on the floor when others clapped and stomped their feet. It was more likely than not that shots would be fired into pyramid courts that night, perhaps from the same white men who sneered when the pickets strode by. Many of the adult activists who marched during the day kept their guns close at night. If the shooting was sustained and became truly dangerous, we will fire back, Manker Harris warned during an interview. We are not playing. The white ruling elite of Cairo weren't playing either. If we have to kill them, blacks, we'll have to kill them. Cairo Mayor Peter Thomas said in an ABC News segment that aired in November 1970, after 20 months of warfare. It seems to me that this is the only way we're going to solve our problems. Thomas's comment was extreme, even by Cairo's standards. But government authorities and the police had long been complicit in violence against marginalized groups. In both North and South, throughout the 20th century, White vigilantes killed black Americans and bombed black homes, businesses, and institutions. They faced little, if any, consequences for their actions. Because this violence was an accepted way of preserving public safety, meaning reinforcing white dominion when black people won political and economic gains. By the era of rebellion in the late 1960s, the influence of the Ku Klux Klan had waned, but anti-black vigilante violence persisted in new forms across the United States. In August 1968, when the police department in Salisbury, Maryland, installed an all-white 216-member volunteer force to aid the regular 40-man force in the event of a riot, black residents proceeded to hurl firebombs at buildings and to loot stores in protest. Salisbury riot control policy, which gave white civilians the power to police black people, had essentially caused a riot. In the steel mill town of Aliquippa, Pennsylvania, in May 1970, open warfare between the races erupted after a young black man brushed against a white police officer on the sidewalk in front of a bar. The policeman berated the young man and did nothing as a white crowd began to assault him. Before long, black and white residents were fighting in the streets with baseball bats, tire chains, and clubs. The next month in Kalamazoo, Michigan, white motorcycle gangs drove through a black neighborhood, shooting at and injuring several residents. A group of about a dozen people proceeded to smash windows around the city and throw rocks at police and passerby. Angered that police allowed the gang to come into the black area, as the Ann Arbor News reported. In the tobacco town of Yanceyville, North Carolina, a fight broke out on Friday, September 18, 1970, between white and black residents at the Caswell County Fair, ending with the shooting of a black girl in the hip. According to the Charlotte Observer, the next day at around 10 o'clock, bands of blacks, numbering about 50, ran down the main street of the city, hurling rocks and firebombs and exchanging gunfire with police. The police did not arrest a single white citizen in connection to the violence in any of these cities, even though white citizens had been instigators and perpetrators. 
white people could attack black people and face no consequences. Black people were criminalized and punished for defending themselves and their communities. The forces of anti-black violence and black rebellion in Salisbury, Aliquippa, Kalamazoo, and Yanceyville did not reach the scale of that in Cairo or York. Although police in these cities were complicit in white violence and looked the other way when white supremacists spread terror, Cairo's UCCA and York's white gangs were highly organized, heavily armed, and actively collaborated with local law enforcement. As a result, violence in both cities was protracted and particularly deadly. As far as black residents were concerned, they were fighting for their lives and the safety of their communities. But still, the notion of a general race war took hold. In 1970, during the height of the violence in Cairo, the Atlantic described the city as split into two armed camps, white and black with bad faith on both sides. Chapter 4 The Snipers In the shadow of Martin Luther King Jr.'s assassination and the enactment of the Safe Streets Act, both in 1968, the guiding principle of Black American protest moved away from nonviolence and towards self-defense. Although black people had long armed themselves to protect their families and communities, especially in the 1930s and 1940s, this shift had been a decade in the making within the mainstream freedom movement. In Monroe, North Carolina, where Klan rallies attracted 15,000 people, the NAACP engaged in armed resistance against white supremacist violence under the leadership of the World War II veteran Robert F. Williams. There is no law here, Williams declared from the steps of the Monroe Courthouse in 1959 after a jury acquitted a white man for the rape of a black woman. It is time that Negroes must defend themselves, even if it is necessary to resort to violence. Williams founded a rifle club, the Black Guard, to practice what he called armed self-reliance. As Williams's following grew, and as Monroe became a site of civil rights protests, they were met with violent resistance by local whites. A white mob, some several thousand strong, attacked about 30 demonstrators during a sit-in, inflicting significant injuries on many of the black protesters. The bleeding people were arrested, the members of the mob walked free, and Williams fled to Cuba where he began hosting a radio show and publishing a newspaper, The Crusader, attracting a wide international following. Williams's influential 1962 book, Negroes with Guns, made the case for armed resistance as essential to the struggle against white violence and oppression. When people say that they are opposed to Negroes resorting to violence, what they really mean is that they are opposed to Negroes defending themselves, Williams wrote. As he saw it, from Klansmen in Monroe to officials in Washington, white people tended to treat black people's exercise of their Second Amendment rights as an act of violence. Black Americans did not introduce violence into a racist social system, Williams argued. Rather, the violence is already there and has always been there. When Williams and his followers challenged the exclusive monopoly of violence practiced by white racists, they were maintaining their dignity 
and hoping to promote public safety. We have shown in Monroe that with violence working both ways, constituted law will be more inclined to keep the peace. Since law enforcement and the courts had failed to protect black people from white vigilantes, Williams believed armed self-defense was the best available means to prevent the escalation of violence. As law enforcement, the press, and much of the white public saw it, black self-defense was an illegitimate form of protest that was rooted in racism against whites and that undermined public safety. And no form of black self-defense was more illegitimate or more terrifying than sniping. Black people who shot at police with rifles while hidden from view were imagined to be psychopaths associated with fringe militant activists who were the true agents of violence in American streets in the 1960s and 1970s. The term sniping became shorthand for the shooting, usually targeting precinct stations, firehouses, and other symbols of state power, that very often provided the soundtrack for rebellion. For some black residents, sniping was a way to intimidate the police into backing down and to let the officers know that some black people were prepared to defend their community. For many white Americans, the idea of the black sniper hunting police from the rooftops, which did happen on rare occasions, was freighted with political meaning, giving credence to the idea that there was a nationwide black conspiracy to kill police. Any account of the rebellions of the late 1960s and early 1970s requires an understanding of the black sniper, both the reality and the boogeyman stalking the white imagination, not least because this figure seems so foreign in the early 21st century. The black sniper complicates, in important and revealing ways, the cycle of state violence and rebellion that characterized this era. A close look at the sniping phenomenon reveals that the larger system of anti-black political and economic exclusion was ultimately responsible for violence in this period, and that some police officers themselves became the victims of this system and its consequences. The image of the black sniper first took hold during the Newark Uprising in July 1967, as calls for self-defense were made with greater frequency and vehemence in the black community. Before that year's long, hot summer, black rebellions in Newark and across the country had mainly climaxed in the torching of buildings and police cars with Molotov cocktails. Most of the unrest that summer, though, involved firearms. Law enforcement officials, believing that black residents were arming themselves and targeting police officers, became obsessed with sniping. The fear of the black sniper was prefigured by an older concern, dating back to the Civil War and the First World War, over collective violence perpetrated by black veterans— and it is not surprising that it grabbed white Americans in the context of the Vietnam War, which many black soldiers, black communities, and the black power and anti-war movements saw as a failed and racially charged conflict. Authorities viewed black veterans, who had received the latest training in waging war, as potentially dangerous vectors of resentment, capable of organizing and inflicting violence— Black soldiers had been taught to shoot in order to spread freedom and democracy around the world. What would prevent them from using their skills in the struggle to secure freedom and democracy at home? 
Killings of police officers spiked in 1969 and remained high through the mid-1970s after black snipers first became a concern. Two fewer police officers were killed in the line of duty in 1967 than in 1962, when 78 were killed, according to FBI uniform crime reports. From 76 in 1967, the number rose sharply in 1969 before peaking in 1974, when 132 officers were killed, a number that has not been surpassed since. The claims about black snipers in the coverage to the rebellions in Detroit and Newark in 1967, and in smaller cities in the years after, added another layer of drama to the unrest and fed into the widespread perception that urban rebellions were part of a larger black nationalist conspiracy. Network producers at NBC News, planning a TV documentary about the violence in Detroit, allegedly went so far as to interview a group of Negro rioters and ask them, which one of you fellows wants to play the part of a sniper? If sniping was a new problem, its effects were not yet apparent in the numbers of police being killed. The focus on sniping did distract from escalating police brutality in the summer of 1967. Police, believing their own lives were in greater danger than before, often felt they had license to act without regard to the law or human rights. Between July 12th and July 17th in Newark, police killed 24 black residents. Less than a week later, beginning on July 23rd in Detroit, where one National Guardsman explained, If we see anyone move, we shoot and ask questions later. 33 black residents were killed most, if not all, at the hands of law enforcement and the National Guard. Police usually claimed they were only returning fire from rooftops or windows, but in many cases they randomly or even wildly fired their weapons, killing black people who were not involved in the rebellion, individuals who might be sitting at home with their parents, taking the trash out after curfew, or standing in front of a drugstore. The violent exchanges between police and black residents during rebellions were subject to the same uncertainties that accompanied any combat situation. The fog of war. From American soldiers in the rice paddies of Vietnam to police in the courtyards of housing projects, the forces of counterinsurgency did not know where, when, or how their adversary would make their next move. In the late 1960s and early 1970s, when black rebellion peaked in frequency and scale, long-standing paranoias about black insurgency created an atmosphere of suspicion and unpredictability. The imagination of white police officers, municipal officials, and federal authorities ran wild. A life cover story following the Newark Rebellion alleged that a 50-member sniping group affiliated with SNCC had traveled to Newark after organizing unemployed sharecroppers in Mississippi and had ignited the violence. The journalist who wrote the story, Russell Sackett, explained that indiscriminate murder was never the intention of the snipers, who instead tried to distract police in order to provide residents with opportunities to loot. While the police are busy tearing buildings apart looking to kill snipers, our people are getting color television sets, refrigerators, clothes. What they couldn't afford, they got it, one member of this alleged group reportedly said. Later, Sackett would admit that the story was partly fabricated.
The men he talked to didn't identify themselves as snipers, and they didn't even carry guns. Still, his reporting aligned with the story many public figures wanted to tell about the rebellion, and it was picked up by other news outlets and widely discussed. Writing in his nationally syndicated column that appeared in the Boston Globe, the conservative public intellectual William F. Buckley cited Sackett's reporting to argue that the riots were related to civil rights and were racist and political in character. The black snipers, Buckley and other pundits argued, were part of a nefarious social movement that would destroy America if left unchecked. Bullet-ridden police cars and buildings were the only physical evidence of the existence of black snipers. There were other possible explanations. One important fact about Newark was that the civilian casualties only started after the National Guard arrived on July 14th, when young and inexperienced guardsmen began seeing snipers everywhere, as Newark Police Director Dominic Spina put it. Did the snipers truly exist? I think a lot of the reports of snipers was due to the, I hate to use the word, trigger-happy guardsmen, who were firing at noises and firing indiscriminately at times. According to Spina, National Guardsmen, not black residents, were the main perpetrators of the unintentional sniping. Officers tended to respond to the sound of a gunshot by haphazardly firing their own guns back. This led to mistaken gun battles between local police and National Guardsmen and to shooting at civilians. The activist and poet Amiri Baraka would put the question to the governor's select commission on the Newark Rebellion. Where are the snipers? Has anybody caught a sniper? Has anybody brought any snipers to light? The answer was no. I think the sniper thing was a ghost created by the white man. Newark activist Willie Wright suggested a myth fabricated by the governor and his Gestapo to commit mass murder in this town. Wright and others in Newark were not faced with white vigilante terrorism like black people in Cairo, York, and other cities across the country, but police violence during the Newark Rebellion led them to take up arms. In anticipation of the National Guard's return to Newark, Wright said, I want to have every black man in the city with a gun on his side or in his home. As he explained, it's just a matter of choosing your battleground to know where you die. White represented an emerging generation of activists responding to and elaborating on the calls for black self-defense that had been raised by Williams from the steps of the courthouse in Monroe, North Carolina, almost a decade earlier, and by Malcolm X before his assassination. In Cairo, the United Front responded to the conditions of the black community by helping arm it. As Charles Cohen and other United Front members believed, this strategy would serve to correct the mistakes made in earlier phases of the mainstream civil rights movement. People have learned to defend themselves, Cohen told a reporter from the New York Times. We have to defend ourselves because no law enforcement body will do it. The United Front established an armed unit called the Black Liberators in the spring of 1969, who were trained by Chicago's Deacons for Defense and Justice leader, Fats Crawford, and whose nightly survival patrols protected Cairo's black community from attacks. For Cohen, Stokely Carmichael, Huey Newton, and other prominent militants, the philosophy of nonviolence may have had some moral advantages— 
but it also came with obvious practical failings. As it had for colonized people in Asia, Latin America, and Africa, in the United States, self-defense became a means for black Americans to contest their second-class citizenship. And as in Vietnam, American authorities launched a counterinsurgency effort against an enemy defined by sniping and guerrilla warfare. Though white fears about black sniping were first voiced during the Newark and Detroit rebellions in 1967, it was only after these bursts of violence and as the politics of self-defense increasingly defined the black freedom struggle that sniping, or more plainly and accurately, shooting, became a regular feature of rebellion. When police arrived to break up a loud house party in a black neighborhood in Kankakee, Illinois, in September 1968, residents responded by firing five shots in their direction, wounding one officer in the neck and shoulder. It was a planned ambush, as police chief Thomas Mass put it. An angry crowd surrounded the officers who came to investigate, and four black residents were arrested. In Roanoke, Virginia, in 1970, two police officers were shot when they arrived to investigate the house where a group of young people regularly hung out after school. After the shots rang out, the injured officers tear-gassed the 17 youths inside, aged 12 to 18, all of whom were arrested on charges of malicious wounding. In Cairo, over three separate attacks in late October 1970, and after nearly 20 months of escalating police and vigilante violence, groups described as squads of armed black men, some dressed in battle fatigues, riddled the police station with hundreds of rounds of gunfire. Cairo police, sheriff's deputies, and state troopers eventually forced the 15 to 18 men back and chased them through the streets of Cairo, with each side firing at the other. Even if the snipers intended to kill or seriously injure police, as officials claimed, they rarely achieved those objectives. Like most police who were shot at by civilians, the officers in Kankakee, Roanoke, and Cairo fortunately suffered relatively minor injuries, if they were hurt at all. Yet police officers were getting killed in record numbers by the middle of the decade— the 76 police officers killed in the line of duty in 1967 increased to 86 the following year. 100 officers lost their lives in 1970, and the years that followed would prove more dangerous for police than any subsequent decade. Law enforcement pled for assistance to fight the enemy in American cities. When police are being shot like fish in a barrel, it's time to do something— the president of the Fraternal Order of Police said in July 1968, as he threatened a two-day walkout of the organization's 137,000 members over the lack of support in dealing with racial violence. While significantly more officers were being killed, there was also a greater police presence on the streets. According to FBI data, the number of uniformed men and women killed annually more than doubled between 1963 and 1971, a period during which the size of the police force in America also more than doubled. The cycle of rebellion and the escalatory actions promoted by the war on crime led to a gradual increase in the number of black men under the age of 25 who were killed by police. And members of this demographic group were killed by officers at a rate ten times higher than their white and Latinx counterparts. 
According to the Compressed Mortality File, available from the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention, also called the CDC, the late 1960s and early 1970s represented the peak of the killings by law enforcement officers of black men under the age of 25, with nearly 100 dying at the hands of police every year. By the 2000s, police shootings of young black men amounted to about 35 annually. Whereas from late 1968 to 1974, black people were the victims of one in four police killings. Between 1975 and 1985, they constituted one in seven. And today, the proportion is about one in ten. The CDC figures may represent underreporting, especially in more recent years. The Mapping Police Violence Consortium and the Washington Post's Fatal Force Database have exposed serious inaccuracies in the federal data, a fact that the Bureau of Justice Statistics has acknowledged. The Mapping Police Violence data indicates that Black people were victims in 1,957 of the 7,627 police killings, or 25.7%, between 2013 and 2019 alone. As in Newark in 1967, many of the black casualties of police fire throughout the rest of the country were not engaging in violence themselves. They were people who happened to be in the wrong place at the wrong time. Fatal shootings by police were treated by officials as isolated events, unrelated to the expansion of police force in targeted black neighborhoods, but the idea of the black sniper became a national phenomenon. It led to more calls for law and order and made it easier to criminalize the post-civil rights black freedom struggle. Whether real or imagined, policymakers and law enforcement officials responded to the figure of the black sniper as a terrorist threatening to destroy America or bring the nation to the brink of civil war, if it had not already. As the Black Liberation News observed, following a series of ambushes on police in New York City in February 1970, the police who daily patrol the Black community as a white occupation army sense that the sniping amounts to a very specific declaration of war. The idea of the Black sniper turned the cycle of police violence and Black rebellion on its head, in this version of racial conflict in the late 1960s and early 1970s, white police were helpless victims of black aggressors, murdered in cold blood for merely trying to help black residents in need. With the black sniper presumed to be skulking in the American city's urban shadows, virtually all activity by any organizations promoting armed self-defense, from police-the-police programs to community centers to direct action protest, was deemed by white officials to be linked to revolutionary groups that aim to overthrow the U.S. government. Because black snipers were viewed as a domestic security issue, the path chosen by policymakers and officials at all levels involved more and better equipped police. New personal armor, new armored vehicles, new, more fortified police department buildings, new, more advanced weaponry. These were, in part, a consequence of the fears of the black sniper. About 30% of the uprisings between 1968 and 1972 involved reports of shooting by civilians, 
a significant figure. Yet at the same time, shooting and sniping fostered a broad atmosphere of lawlessness among police. A grand jury investigation into 25 of the deaths in Newark in 1967 concluded that police and National Guardsmen had resorted to excessive use of firearms. The Governor's Select Commission reported that the amount of ammunition expended by police forces was out of all proportion to the mission assigned to them. This reality was not unique to Newark or major cities in general. In the downriver Detroit suburb of Inkster, where 40% of the 37,000 residents were black, the shooting death of a police officer led officials to attempt to undermine the growing influence of local black radicals, some of whom were active-duty soldiers, and set law enforcement down a path of violence that ended in the killing of a 15-year-old boy. Darnell Stephen Summers was one of the black radicals of particular concern to local authorities in Inkster. On leave from the Army in the summer of 1968, the 21-year-old returned home with specific political objectives in mind. Summers was set to be deployed to Vietnam in the fall. But in the meantime, he started an organization called the Black Youth Council and devised a three-point plan, which the group presented to the Inkster City Council in late July as a program for averting summer trouble. Before 100 supporters and the integrated city council, Summers and his comrades labeled conditions in Inkster a state of emergency and called for the creation of a black community center, a citywide investigation into police harassment, and the improvement of parks in black neighborhoods to the same level of those in white neighborhoods. During the meeting, the 26-year-old activist Turhan Lewis took a bullet from his pocket and placed it in view of the council as a threat that there would be bloodshed if the demands were not met. And they gave up the keys, Summers remembered. The city council voted unanimously in favor of the plan, but only followed through on the cultural center, granting the Black Youth Council space in a vacant recreation center in the segregated part of the city where Summers and other members lived. By August, Summers Youth Council had established the Malcolm X Cultural Center in the building, intending to strengthen social bonds and improve the community using the recreation building the city had permitted them. They adorned its walls with images of black power icons, including H. Rap Brown, Stokely Carmichael, and of course, the late Malcolm X, the godfather of black power, whose name appeared on a hand-painted sign in the front of the building. In life, Malcolm had an important connection to Inkster. After his release from prison in 1952, he lived in the city with his brother, Wilfred Little, moving up the ranks in the Nation of Islam as he built cars at the Ford Assembly Plant and garbage trucks at Garwood Industries. Within a year of his arrival, Malcolm became assistant minister at Muhammad's Temple No. 1 in Detroit and wrote his first sermons from his bedroom at Wilfred's. In what would be the last public address he delivered on February 14, 1965, at Detroit's Ford Auditorium, Malcolm spoke of vigorous action for self-defense as the only means to combat white supremacist violence from Detroit to Dixie. I used to live out here in Inkster, Malcolm said, and you had to go through Dearborn to get to Inkster, just like driving through Mississippi when you go to Dearborn. In both places, black people were vulnerable to the twinned forces of vigilantes and police. 
Inkster was surrounded by all-white suburbs with all-white police departments whose job, effectively, was to keep the black residents out. Inkster had been designed as a segregated city and a company town under the influence of Henry Ford, who developed its sewers, water system, and electrical lines to provide housing for black employees during the Depression in the 1930s. Although Ford framed Inkster as a humanitarian cause, he deducted the cost of development from the wages of his black workers. For some families, this tax was 80% of their earnings. What little was left of black workers' pay was likely spent at the commissary that Ford built in Inkster, and which posted some of the lowest prices for food and essentials in the area in order to keep everyone buying from him. While Ford established what resembled an urban sharecropping system in Inkster, nearby Dearborn, where he had lived and where he located his company's headquarters, remained a segregationist white enclave. The city's motto, Keep Dearborn Clean, could be found on bumper stickers on police cars, a thinly veiled message Malcolm X likely encountered as he drove through the city to work in the plants in Detroit. Is it still that way? Malcolm asked his audience in the Ford Auditorium, and they told him that it was. Well, you should straighten it out. Beginning on August 2nd, days after the Malcolm X Cultural Center opened, police reported incidents of rock-throwing, firebombing, and sniper fire over several nights. On August 7th, city officials sent a police officer to the building to force Summers, who would be sent to Vietnam in September, to change the center's name and remove its sign, as though the invocation alone of Malcolm X was somehow responsible for the violence. The city council likely faced pressure from Detroit's Red Squad, a police intelligence unit founded in 1932 to disrupt subversive social movements, and that, by the late 1960s, was collaborating with the FBI's counterintelligence program, also called COINTELPRO, to root out black militants. The squad had been investigating Summers and the Black Youth Council for several weeks, and now the center refused to meet the city's demands. That evening, Inkster police officers John Knight and Thomas Freeman patrolled the black neighborhood in the southwest tip of the city that was home to the cultural center. Their shift began with a call to investigate a sniping complaint. Someone's car had been shot up. Knight, one of the few black officers in Inkster, took a statement from a witness and then continued driving through the community with his white partner. As Freeman and Knight approached a Mercury Cougar, they heard a gunshot from the opposite side of the street, presumably aimed at them. The officers passed the Cougar, which had pulled up in front of the center. Someone in the Mercury fired two shots in Freeman and Knight's direction, sending fragments of flying shell casings into Freeman's face and into Knight's right arm and the right side of his stomach. Freeman returned fire into the Cougar, but didn't strike any of its passengers. Instead, the officer shot a nearby pedestrian in the shoulder. 21-year-old Gerald Calvin Graham happened to be passing by at an unfortunate moment. On their way to Wayne County General Hospital, Knight and Freeman broadcast a description of the cougar. Both were shaken, but neither had suffered serious injuries. The police had a suspect within five minutes of the exchange. Although Knight and Freeman described the cougar as dark, maroon, black, or gray, 
Two Inkster police stopped a light green cougar on Carlisle Street in front of the Malcolm X Center where the shooting had taken place. The driver, black youth council member Turhan Lewis, the young man who had threatened the city council with a bullet, had two loaded 30 caliber rifles and a pistol in his possession and was promptly arrested and charged on two counts, carrying a concealed weapon and assault with intent to murder. Though it appeared the police had found the sniper, the search for Lewis's supposed accomplices continued into the night. Red Squat detectives assigned to monitor Summers and other youth council members joined in the manhunt. As a trained G.I., Summers posed a particular threat. Robert Gonzer and Frederick Prisby, dressed in plain clothes, drove their unmarked squad car around the area. Gonzer had been on the force 12 years, but had only been promoted to the Red Squad eight months before. His children, ages three, five, and eight, were old enough for Gonzer to assume the demands required of special intelligence officers, which included shifts in the middle of the night. At around 2.40 a.m. on August 8th, as Gonzer and Prisby headed south on the Middle Belt Service Drive, a 1964 Pontiac Bonneville turned directly into their path at an intersection. Gonzer swerved to avoid it. They got a rifle, the trooper announced, speeding up. Three shots came from the car, one of them striking him in the back. I'm hit, I'm hit, was the last thing Gonzer said. He died almost immediately, one of the five police officers across the country whose deaths were attributed to sniper fire in a two-week period. Following Gonzer's shooting, Inkster Police Chief James L. Fike invoked a mutual aid pact to summon officers from the Wayne County Sheriff's Department and from other surrounding white communities, including Westland, Dearborn, and Garden City, to help with the search for the culprits. The police force in Inkster soon quadrupled to 100 officers, armed with rifles and shotguns, and was joined by four FBI agents. Meanwhile, 16-year-old Herman Matthews and his cousin, 14-year-old James Matthews, were at a friend's house with two other teens about 10 blocks away from the Malcolm X Center. Police frequently patrolled their neighborhood, and it was the middle of the night, so the four teenagers didn't think much of the officer's presence. Westland cops approached the group in their squad car at around 3 o'clock, having just heard over the police radio that one of the snipers suspected of shooting Gonzer was wearing a white shirt and dark pants. When the officers saw four Negro men standing in front of the house, one of them wearing a white shirt, they assumed they had discovered the shooter and his accomplices. The officers were eager to arrest the person responsible for taking a fellow cop's life. They jumped out of their cruiser, rifles in hand. The boy's instinct was not to surrender to the white men with guns, but to run. The Matthews cousins sprinted across their friend's backyard toward their own homes as the other two teens dashed back into the house. The boys ran because they hadn't done anything wrong. The police assumed they ran because they were guilty. Herman Matthews tripped over a garbage can and fell, giving one of the officers an opportunity to catch him. The officer pointed a rifle at the teenager's head, handcuffed him, searched him, and placed him in the squad car as the other officers continued to pursue James Matthews. Herman Matthews recalled hearing gunshots just before he was taken to the police station, where he was held until 11 o'clock without charge and without an opportunity to call his parents.
Alone, James Matthews ran toward home and away from the police, seeking refuge in a field around the corner from where the chase began. One of the officers broadcast over the police radio that a colored male wearing a white T-shirt carrying an unidentified object was in the field. As the officers closed in on him, Matthews pulled off his white shirt so as not to be seen as easily, but flashlights still picked his body out of the darkness. According to official reports, the officers commanded Matthews to halt and fired warning shots. According to witnesses, Matthews looked at the officers and then commenced running. There were more shots, and two of them hit Matthews, causing 13 separate pellet wounds and killing him instantly. No weapon was found on or near him. That morning, police wasted no time vandalizing the Malcolm X Center, Beginning at 6.30, a group of state police visited the site to gather evidence that would link its members to the two shootings of police officers. When members of the Cultural Center arrived at the site hours later, they found the glass cover over a bulletin board smashed and photographs of black power icons torn from the walls. The police had taken membership lists and other papers and set up wiretaps in hopes that they would eventually secure enough evidence to arrest and charge Summers and his associates. In their minds, apparently, the Youth Council's celebration of Malcolm X proved that it was responsible for the violence. More than 100 black residents attended a special city council meeting held less than 24 hours after the killings of Gonzer and Matthews. The Reverend Aaron Butler, the chairman of the Inkster Ministerial Alliance, made a series of demands, including the immediate suspension of all officers involved in Matthews' shooting. Others objected to the mutual aid pact that brought white officers from other towns into their town. We don't mind if the state police and Wayne County Sheriff comes into Inkster, one resident said, but keep those lily-white police that surround us out. The tension-charged meeting lasted for an hour and a half, ending only after the council voted unanimously to reopen the center and to keep Malcolm X in its name. The police department initially refused to release any details of the Matthews killing, prohibiting officers and administrators from commenting on it. We can't say whether an officer, many officers, or a civilian shot the boy, said Wayne County Prosecutor James Brickley, None of the details law enforcement eventually released about James Matthews' final moments seemed to add up. I think a frightened child might be captured without the use of firearms, James's 23-year-old brother, George Matthews, reasoned. My personal opinion is that the police were looking for a scapegoat. His brother's killing was, as he put it, an unwarranted assault on teenagers as a mean to even the score for an act that was undoubtedly perpetrated by adults. But the police and press did treat the Matthews cousins as adults, from the four officers who called in a sighting of Negro men to the reporters who frequently referred to them as men in their coverage, making the use of deadly force against a child seem less brutal and more justified. There was only one way that justice for James Matthews could be won, as far as his family was concerned. I think the person or persons responsible should be charged with murder. Cold, premeditated murder. It's as simple as that, George Matthews concluded.
Hosey Matthews, James's father, filed a complaint with the Michigan Civil Rights Commission, and in response, District Attorney William Callahan called for a special 15-person team of prosecutors, police, and sheriff's officers to investigate. Not surprisingly, with no civilian oversight and no stakeholders outside of law enforcement, the team determined that the officer who shot Matthews, the unarmed boy who was running, terrified, home to his parents, had acted lawfully. The killing was a case of mistaken identity. The police described the sniper as wearing a white shirt, and Matthews, clad in a white shirt, fit the profile. In August 1970, a group of young people living in Chicago's Robert Taylor homes opened fire on police patrolling the housing project, forcing them into a gun battle. Elsewhere, in the city's Cabrini-Green project, nicknamed Combat Alley by the Chicago Police Department, snipers fatally shot two community relations officers from an apartment on the sixth floor. When police returned to clean up the scene and find the perpetrators, they were met with volleys of gunfire. After the sniping finally subsided, officers searched every apartment in the Cabrini-Green complex, kicking down doors, beating residents, and sending two young people to the hospital with serious injuries. Following these events in Chicago, the New York Times boldly declared that America's cities seem to be on the edge of guerrilla war. National debates ignited about attacks on police in black communities and about the seeming persistence of sniping in particular. In Chicago, the December 1969 murders of Black Panther Party leaders Fred Hampton and Mark Clark during a raid conducted by the Chicago police in conjunction with the FBI and a tactical unit of the Cook County, Illinois, U.S. Attorney's Office had permanently tarnished the reputation of law enforcement authorities for many residents. The police fired at the 21-year-old Hampton, the 22-year-old Clark, and other Panthers between 82 and 89 times. The Panthers, who were sleeping when the shooting started, returned one gunshot. Despite the evidence, authorities quickly concluded that the police fired in self-defense and left the crime scene unsecured. Lawyers representing Hampton and Clark's families proceeded to conduct their own investigation in the weeks that followed, and many community members came to see Hampton's bullet-torn apartment for themselves. Nothing but a northern lynching, an older black woman concluded. For this woman and other black residents in Chicago and elsewhere, the local, state, and federal authorities had conspired to assassinate Hampton and Clark, and now faced no consequences for their actions. Law enforcement at every level had demonstrated a pattern of brutal lawlessness in prior incidents, and for some residents, retaliation now seemed to be a reasonable response. The prospect of retaliatory violence did not escape policymakers. Within the crucible period of black rebellion in the late 1960s and early 1970s, many federal officials and journalists assumed that, at any moment, black youth would attempt a large-scale insurrection. Commenting on an FBI report titled Outlook for Racial Violence in 1970, White House Special Counsel Leonard Garment observed in a memo sent in May that year to President Nixon's domestic affairs advisor, John Ehrlichman. In our urban areas, the ingredients which could precipitate wholesale rioting and violence are present. 
tensions in the ghettos remain high. Garment may never have considered the possibility that the increase in aggressive patrolling and the stockpiling of military-grade weapons by urban police forces with the support of the federal government contributed to these tensions. The cause, rather, was the implacable hostility of black youths to local police. Garment went on to reiterate the FBI's conclusion that danger signals pointing to the possibility of racial violence in the United States are as plentiful this year as they have been every year since 1963. The belief that young black people would only continue to engage in such acts of violence as snipings, attacks on police, killings, arson, and sabotage profoundly shaped the strategies Garment and other federal policymakers developed in the years to come. This is a war against the police, Mississippi Senator James Easton declared in October 1970, five months after Garment's memo and in the aftermath of the guerrilla warfare in Chicago, as he opened the Internal Security Subcommittee hearings on assaults on law enforcement officers. Eastland, the chair of the Senate Judiciary Committee, and known as the Voice of the White South for his staunch opposition to integration, argued that the problem of violence against police was fundamentally a national security issue. There was an ominous pattern of deadly violence, a wave of urban guerrilla warfare which threatens to undermine a pillar of law and order. Because it was a police responsibility to protect us always from the threat from within, as Eastland put it, paraphrasing former President Dwight Eisenhower, and because sniping was aimed largely at law enforcement, it threatened to undermine civilized society. Every time a police officer dies at the hands of a killer, a part of our legal system goes with him, Senator Edward Gurney said. Eastland hoped to use the violence in Chicago to build support for a series of legislative proposals he and his Republican colleagues had drafted, including the Urban Terrorism Prevention Act, sponsored by Subcommittee Vice Chairman Thomas J. Dodd of Connecticut. Together, these bills would empower state and local governments to stop attacks on police officers, firemen, and judges by expanding the U.S. Criminal Code to include a new range of penalties for people who injured or killed an officer because of his official character. The proposed bills would levy more severe punishments on anyone involved in urban terrorist acts, broadly defined, including mandatory minimum sentences for suspects in possession of Molotov cocktails or explosives. Eastland and other senators wanted to bring sniping to an end and offer police on the beat and troubled urban communities a new layer of protection. None of the bills ultimately passed. But the debate in Congress did indicate broad support among legislators for aggressive law enforcement strategies and for the money already flowing from the federal government into urban police forces. Although the Weathermen, Students for a Democratic Society, also called SDS, and anti-war activists were mentioned throughout the three days of the hearings, most of the testimony and discussion focused on the Black Panthers, who, as Republican Senator Richard Schweiker, a co-sponsor of one of the bills under consideration, claimed were behind the national radical conspiracy to assault and kill law enforcement across the land. 
Los Angeles Police Chief Ed Davis testified that during the annual summer festival held in Watts, beginning in 1966 to commemorate the 1965 rebellion, there were virtual volley lines of shooting at policemen and policemen returning the fire of people shooting at them, all of it stimulated by Black Panther activity. A sniping incident during the festival ended in the deaths of two Panthers at the hands of police. The shootout took place far away from the site of the event itself, but in Davis's telling, the festival turned into a virtual battlefield. Davis went on to share the story of two other Black Panther members, armed with a carbine and a shotgun, who came up behind two Los Angeles police officers and opened fire. One officer was hit and suffered minor injuries. The Panthers did not fare as well, however. One was killed by the return fire, and the other was hauled off to jail. By Davis's own account, the Panthers were the ones who were dying disproportionately in the violence. Yet as he saw it, there is no doubt in my mind that there is a conspiracy to eliminate the police, genocide against the police to use their own term. He repeated the key claim— there is organized genocide against the police. In the Panthers' view, they were the ones under attack, as the slaughter the year prior of Fred Hampton and Mark Clark, asleep in a Chicago apartment, appeared to show. The Panthers' organization was founded for the survival of the community, as members saw it. Huey P. Newton and Bobby Seale, both in college at the time, created the Black Panther Party for Self-Defense, as it was originally called, in 1966 to fight back against state-sanctioned violence in Oakland, California. The seventh item in the organization's 10-point program read, We believe we can end police brutality in our black community by organizing black self-defense groups that are dedicated to defending our black community from racist police oppression and brutality. Deeply influenced by Robert F. Williams and Malcolm X, the party would emerge before long as the most prominent organization based on the principle of black self-defense in American history. One of the first concrete acts the Panthers took was the creation of the Police Alert Patrol. If we saw the police brutalizing anyone, we would put an end to it. Newton explained in an interview from Alameda County Jail in 1968, Most Oakland police officers did not live in the city, and the force was notoriously violent. Usually the police wouldn't brutalize anyone if we were on hand because we were armed. If someone was arrested and taken to jail, the Panthers would follow with money for bail ready. Policing the police was an approach to self-defense that intended to keep people safe during police encounters without putting any lives in danger. The presence of Panthers with shotguns and rifles in their hands was often enough to discourage officers from acting with impunity. As the Panthers gained power and influence in Oakland and other cities, the police alert patrols became one of the cornerstones of Panther organizing across the country, serving as both a means of community defense and a powerful recruitment tool. In Omaha, Nebraska, Panthers tapped into the police call network and would show up when the police moved to make an arrest— Waiting for calls to come in, Panther members would sit on the front porch of their homes with rifles on their laps and pistols holstered on their belts. When police drove by, the Panthers would sometimes shoot their guns in the air. As members themselves confronted harassment and violence from law enforcement, 
the police alert patrols evolved into a self-preservation tactic. According to the party's own estimates, members were arrested at least 739 times in 1968 and 1969 and paid out a total of nearly $5 million in bail for party affiliates and community members. In the three years following Hampton and Clark's assassinations, ten Panthers and nine police officers were killed during raids and other confrontations across America. Although activists insisted that they were acting in their own self-defense, policymakers and officials believed that Black Panthers, other revolutionaries, and Black snipers represented the greatest adversary that has ever challenged the American law enforcement officer as Illinois State Police Superintendent James T. McGuire testified. He described these groups as consisting of people more cunning, more evil, more fanatical, more mobile, and in many cases better educated than any other that has ever appeared on the American scene. Even as McGuire and others remained convinced that the slaughter of policemen was part of a larger conspiracy, they contradicted themselves— dismissing the politics of self-defense as pathological, as mindless terrorism lacking any sound motivation. To some demented minds, a strike against a public official has become synonymous with a strike against the problems that exist in our society, said Hugh Scott, the Republican senator from Pennsylvania, co-sponsor of the Urban Terrorism Prevention Act, this view of sniping and armed self-defense as a form of mental illness shut down any possibility of understanding the role of policing strategies or public policies as causes of violence. The issue was not police pathology, as activists claimed. Policymakers and law enforcement pointed to community pathology. The central problem is how the community reacts to the police— James Frone, the president of the Hamilton County Fraternal Order of Police Lodge in the Cincinnati area, testified. The Cincinnati police had tried all types of programs to improve their standing with black residents, community relations initiatives, integrated squad cars, a cadet program for young black people, and subsidized college tuition for would-be black officers. None had worked, and not because individual police officers held racist views, Frone was quick to add. Since I first put on my uniform 18 years ago, I have attempted to be fair to everyone, and I believe I am representative of our police force, Frone vowed. I assure you, in terms of balance, the problem doesn't lie here with the policemen, but with the community. If anything, the police had performed admirably during the most difficult moments of racial strife, showing remarkable restraint amid ongoing attacks and harassment by black residents, just as the Inkster police force had in the minds of law enforcement in that city. The police had acted rationally and employed violence legitimately, even if sometimes innocent people got caught in the crossfire or fell victim to cases of mistaken identity. At the hearings, law enforcement officials threatened that officers would be forced to use radical discretion in their own self-defense, absent new resources and laws to combat black snipers and the revolutionary social movements alongside which they appeared to operate. 
In response to the guerrilla warfare in Chicago's Cabrini Green housing project, the 150,000 officers represented by the International Conference of Police Associations pledged to stand united together in an all-out retaliation against these senseless killings, even if it is in the form of on-the-street justice against those persons organized or otherwise who injure or kill police officers. Further justifying lawlessness on the part of law enforcement, John Harrington, the president of the Fraternal Order of Police, said he would go so far as to advocate for police to shoot looters if there was no other way to stop this practice. By this point, police were already shooting and injuring civilians at higher rates than in the mid-1960s. Charles A. O'Brien, the Deputy Attorney General of California, spent most of his testimony recounting alarming stories about the widespread distribution of bomb-making instructions, the stockpiling of arsenals by black revolutionaries and white radicals, and the influence of Gilo Pontecorvo's 1966 movie, The Battle of Algiers, which depicted insurgent urban guerrillas killing police officers during the Algerian War of Independence and served as a virtual primer to many of our homegrown terrorists. Yet in O'Brien's concluding statement, he stepped outside the law and order echo chamber to offer the senators advice they may not have expected. A major key to conquering this problem is to stop making the policeman the scapegoat for all of society's ills. We cannot continue to solve all our problems by passing new criminal laws. The policeman today bears the brunt of the failures of government. Poverty, inequality, disease, ignorance, and the alienation of youth were not caused by the policeman, but he is the agent who most often comes face to face with these problems. He is the one who was called in when the system breaks down. He is the one who has to put the lid back on. We must demand that the other segments of government do more. Social agencies, educational institutions, college administrators, public law offices— all of these other agencies on which we spend billions must be asked to do more, to bear more of the burden, to act more creatively, to assume more responsibility. I consider this as critical as any portion of our response to the problems of policemen today. Here was a rare occasion where a white official acknowledged root causes and broad, ambitious solutions. Even if the comment came in amid claims of black viciousness and conspiracy, it represented a brief, exceptional moment. O'Brien's suggestions went unheeded by the Congressional Committee and did not appear in any form in the domestic policies of the era. The irony is that the Malcolm X Community Center in Inkster, Michigan, was doing just what O'Brien hoped new government policies and programs would do—empower and encourage black youth. Likewise, the Black Panthers provided a wide range of services in low-income black communities, including a Breakfast for Children program, community-based health clinics, and political education classes. Likewise, too, the United Front in Cairo distributed food, clothing, and household goods to impoverished black families and organized the community on the principles of love and collective self-determination. All of these measures were meant to ensure the survival of black people, who understood themselves as vulnerable to violence from police officers and white civilians. None of these activities registered with policymakers and local officials. 
The belief that sniping, or simply black self-defense, was part of a larger revolutionary conspiracy or an expression of community pathology prevented those in power from imagining alternatives to further escalation of the crime war. The cycle of violence and rebellion could be broken, but not by the application of more violence. Chapter 5 The Poisoned Tree Claiborne T. Callahan joined the Alexandria Police Department in 1960 at 24 years old, after spending his early 20s as a stunt double. Now at 33, with his Hollywood days long behind him, Callahan taught people how to fly planes in the mornings and patrolled the city's segregated black community, Arlandria, in the evenings. The husky Callahan saw himself as a fair cop, if aggressive at times, especially with black teenagers. I think I've got a reputation, he admitted, although he believed that his use of force was always justified. If Callahan let certain things go, if he backed off during tense moments, I would be stealing my money right off the citizens paying me to come out and protect them. For Callahan, getting a little rough sometimes was simply part of good police work. Officer Callahan had been involved in a number of questionable incidents during his nine years on the force, though no punishments were ever levied. In May 1968, for instance, a 17-year-old black teenager accused Callahan of beating him and calling him all kinds of names. Callahan denied the charge in court, while the young man was found guilty of resisting arrest and received a 30-day suspended sentence. A year and a half later, Callahan would commit a similar act and helped send the city spiraling into rebellion. The officer's superiors would sing his praises. These people are afraid of him, not because he might hurt them, but because they are afraid he is going to lock them up if they break the law. Sergeant Edgar Cassidy said of Callahan, we could do our job much better if we had more officers like him. The Alexandria elite would throw a fundraiser in Callahan's honor. The encounter that foreshadowed a rebellion took place on the first Saturday in October 1969. In the final hours of his routine four-to-midnight shift in Arlandria, Callahan was dispatched to the T-shaped intersection at Edison and Dale Streets, where a group of about 30 young people were playing pickup football. Street football was a popular weekend activity among the teens in the neighborhood, but when Callahan arrived just before 10.30, he broke up the game and told the players and the spectators to go home. Most followed the officer's orders, but 13-year-old Daryl Turner and two of his friends stayed behind to engage with the officer. The young men suggested Callahan refer to them as black or negro instead of as colored boys. As Turner remembered it, Callahan said that he didn't understand why colored people got so upset when someone called them colored and scolded the young men. We tried to explain to him that it was a matter of respect or something. We didn't know exactly how to say it, Turner said. Callahan once again ordered Turner and his friends to get off the streets, then drove off to a McDonald's parking lot a block away to wait in his car. One job done, on to the next. So far, the night had gone smoothly for Callahan. None of the young people playing football had failed to comply with his orders or to respect his authority. Segregation was officially over, but Alexandria, Virginia, 
an important port in the slave trade and the site of at least two lynchings during the late 19th century, remained steeped in Southern history and tradition. A statue of a Confederate soldier facing south dominated the city's main downtown intersection. Benjamin James, a black 65-year-old retired railroad worker, remembered when a colored man could be arrested for just being in Arlandria after dark. There has been a great change since then, but white people still want to be able to tell us what to do. The end of Jim Crow in the mid-1960s did not bring equality in education, employment, public accommodations, or housing. Alexandria desegregated with reluctance. It was the last city in the Washington, D.C. metropolitan area to enact an open housing law, and the desegregation of schools, which began in 1966, sparked massive resistance, as it did elsewhere across the country. More than half of black Alexandrians, compared to only 4% of whites, had an income below $3,200 annually for a family of four and were therefore considered poor based on federal anti-poverty criteria. And of those considered poor, most were at or close to the poverty line, a yet lower threshold. By the late 1960s, some older black residents still did not know they had won the right to vote, and there were no black representatives in city government. Locked out of Alexandria's white areas, middle-class black families lived next door to poor black families in segregated neighborhoods or public housing. Arlandria, where Callahan patrolled, had been all white until the early 1960s, when a series of floods in the area depreciated real estate and opened up the modest brick row houses to black home buyers for the first time. White people fled to the suburbs. Officer Callahan patrolled Arlandia as if it could erupt at any moment. Although Alexandria, a city of 125,000 residents, about 15% of whom were black, did not undergo the kind of large-scale uprising that occurred in nearby Washington, D.C., following Martin Luther King Jr.'s murder in April 1968, on the 4th of July of that year, about 100 black youths had hurled firecrackers and bottles at police cars and motorists on the main thoroughfare outside of the all-black Samuel Madden housing project. Police threw tear gas canisters back, and the battle continued until dawn. As Callahan saw it, the problem was insufficient force. If we had two-man cars, we wouldn't have incidents like this, Callahan argued. But the city was too cheap, in Callahan's words, to effectively double its police force. And that Saturday night in October 1969, he sat alone in his cruiser in the McDonald's parking lot waiting for the next call, the next opportunity. Callahan soon heard a black youth cursing. He called the teenager to his car and asked him why he was using foul language. Someone had hit him on the head during the pickup football game, the teenager explained. Callahan thought he heard the youth call him motherfucker under his breath. He treated this as a crime, disrespecting an officer in the performance of his duties. Well... You're under arrest, Callahan told him. Catch me, the teen said, and began to run.
Police officers who demonstrate a pattern of brutality are frequently referred to by law enforcement officials as bad apples, as though the problem of police violence is limited to those few particularly egregious offenders within departments. The original 12th century proverb from which the term is derived, a rotten apple quickly infects its neighbor, warns that bad apples cannot exist in isolation. In fact, the ripening agent apples emit will quickly spoil the entire barrel if they are not removed in time. The term emerged in national debate following the videotaped beating of Rodney King by a group of Los Angeles police officers in 1991, though law enforcement officials turned the original meaning of the term on its head. Rather than treating bad apple cops as an indication that the entire force was compromised, the bad apple argument of the late 20th and early 21st centuries presents police violence as a problem in a select few individuals who happen to be cops, foreclosing any critique of an aggressive policing culture and of systemic racism that devalues black lives and that is violent to the core. What often goes overlooked, however, is that though the term appears to have been widely used first by the police themselves, the concept has a longer, more complicated history in the American context. In a sense, the concept originated in black communities. As black Americans in the 1960s and 1970s, and in every other era, understood, there are police officers, or slave drivers, or overseers, who are particularly cruel and use their protected position to inflict great pain and suffering on black people. Residents knew these individuals so well that if you mentioned their names or nicknames, Goldie in Stockton, Wee Willie in Charleston, West Virginia, Years or even decades later, everyone remembered them. Even those who weren't around to witness their brutality firsthand had heard the stories, passed down over generations and retold at family barbecues. Bad apples, from the community's perspective, aren't just the officers who shoot indiscriminately, who commit extreme acts of violence and get away with it. Bad apples are the officers who assault residents verbally and physically in ways big and small on an everyday basis. In the cycle of violence that recurred in Alexandria and other American cities in the late 1960s and 1970s, so-called bad apples were frequently involved. More often than not, they set off the violence in the first place. But while some police were certainly more vicious than others— the reaction by police departments and city governments to complaints about specific officers revealed that bad apples would be defended by authorities, whether or not they agreed that particular officers were problematic, if not lawless. In the present era, many still talk about bad apples in police departments and about the 99% who are good cops. But as many black people understood in earlier periods and understand today— the problem was twofold. The bad apples could only spring from a poisoned tree. Clairborn T. Callahan was a bad apple. The suspect he chased on Saturday, October 4, 1969, knew that he was, and so did much of the Arlandria community. Daryl Turner and his crew were still standing on the corner of Dale and Edison, fresh off their conversation with Callahan about his use of the term colored, when the officer raced by in pursuit of the teen he believed had called him motherfucker. 
As the young man ran Callahan around a Volkswagen several times, the officer asked Turner and his two friends to help him. Instead, they encouraged the boy to jump a nearby fence, which he did. Callahan followed and eventually caught the teen. The officer grabbed the foul-mouthed youth by the collar of his shirt, dragged him back up an alley, and handcuffed him in the McDonald's parking lot. The teen asked over and over again why he was being arrested. The officer gave no reason. He didn't have to. According to the official report, as Callahan walked back to his cruiser with the suspect, 30 subjects started throwing bottles and bricks. As he described it, anything they could get their hands on. He claimed that a 14-year-old struck him with a two-by-four length of wood. Callahan responded by hitting the child in the head with his revolver. He can't fight us all. Callahan recalled someone in the mob screaming, Let's get him. Let's get him. Then four people jumped him. Callahan fought back. When reinforcements arrived, they pulled his attackers off him and arrested one of them. If the crowd had just stayed out of it, Callahan could have taken his two suspects, the boy who ran from him and the one who allegedly hit him with the two-by-four, into the squad car, and that would have been that. Though Callahan's own account did not exactly make him look good, his black victims and black witnesses offered a far more damning version of the incident. Residents knew Callahan as aggressive and unpredictable, and that a bad apple is more interested in assaulting black youth than protecting them. As a black mother described Callahan's disposition to a Washington Post reporter, Callahan will get out here and run and play with the kids, and the minute he gets mad with one of them, he thinks he can step in and beat the child. Another said of Callahan, I don't know whether he's playing with the children or not, so I get mine inside as quick as I can. Prior to the incident on October 4th, formal complaints had never materialized into charges against Callahan, or even a transfer to a different beat, because the police department did not have procedures for handling citizens' grievances. Collecting testimony meant nothing against the word of a single white cop. The official report leaves out the statements of the young people who lingered after the pickup game and of the people who lived in the vicinity who saw Callahan pursuing and then aggressively apprehending the young teen who allegedly cursed at him. The way he was dragging him, we thought he was going to hurt him or something. According to Keith Strickland, the boy Callahan accused of wielding a two-by-four. When we got close to Callahan, he looked like he was scared. Strickland claimed that Callahan then took out his gun, started waving it around, and told Strickland and several others to get back or he would shoot. All of the youths started to run, except Strickland, who figured if he walked away from Callahan, there would be less of a chance of him shooting. The plan backfired, and Callahan reached Strickland first. He grabbed me by the collar of my shirt, as he had done to the other boy. I knew I hadn't done anything wrong, so I pulled away from him, and as I jerked away, he hit me across the head with his gun. I went limp. I was hurting so bad I wanted to fall. Callahan then gripped Strickland by his collar once again and started hauling him to the nearby parking lot. Beaten and terrified, Strickland said that he must have lost consciousness. News that Strickland had been severely injured by a policeman traveled quickly throughout the neighborhood, and the community came to his defense. Vernell Drummond, who lived across the street from the alley where Callahan grabbed the young men, immediately went to inform Strickland's mother, Sadie Penn.
Drummond and Penn ran to the McDonald's, where we found Keith lying with his face on the asphalt, the boy whom Callahan had originally chased lying next to him. Drummond claimed that Callahan put his knees into the backs of the two teens to hold them down on the concrete. Desperate, Penn yelled at the officer, You get off my son! Can't you see he's bleeding? People started throwing bottles, rocks, and bricks. Callahan kept his knees on the teens' backs. Penn attempted to pull her son out from under the officer. Callahan pushed Penn with his elbow, knocking her to the ground. He then backed up against a fence and pointed his gun at the growing crowd around him, announcing, Get out of here or I'll shoot. As 30-year-old Arlandria resident Gary Peters approached the McDonald's, he saw Callahan restraining Strickland, the child's head soaked with blood, and watched the officers shove Pin. Peters had just left work and had been heading home to his wife and children when he crossed paths with an acquaintance who mentioned in passing that it's a shame how that policeman is beating that little boy up there, as though the brutality was merely an unfortunate occurrence, part of normal life in the community. Peters decided to go to the parking lot and was prepared to intervene if necessary. I don't believe in violence, but I don't think a grown man should be allowed to go around beating up kids, he later explained. When he arrived, Peters asked Callahan to call an ambulance for Strickland and the other young suspect. What in the hell do you have to do with it? Callahan reportedly sneered and struck Peters on the head with his revolver. Callahan later admitted that he hurt Peters worse than anybody because I could see his skull split open. The two men fought until, alerted by McDonald's employees, three more officers arrived. They pushed Peters off Callahan, handcuffed him, and struck him in the face with a nightstick. As Peters recounted, after a while I just gave up. He was placed in a police cruiser and taken to the hospital to get stitches for his head wounds. Peters was eventually convicted of assault and battery, charges he said he planned on appealing and given a $100 fine and a suspended 30-day jail sentence. There were no repercussions for the police who assaulted him. Peters's intervention had successfully distracted the officers, providing Strickland and the other youth an opportunity to escape. Once both of the teens were apparently safe, Sadie Penn called for an ambulance but none appeared. After 20 minutes, Penn could no longer wait and took her bleeding son to a hospital. They sat in the emergency room for more than an hour without receiving any treatment, so she took him home and dressed his wound herself. Meanwhile, the crowd went home, and Callahan continued his patrol as if nothing unusual had happened. He returned to the Dale Street intersection, where he arrested a young man for loitering. For his part, Strickland received 31 stitches for his head wound. When Callahan reported for duty the next morning, Sunday, October 5th, a number of Keith Strickland's friends were accompanying Sadie Penn to the police station to help her secure a warrant against the officer. Callahan wasn't surprised. Complaints were normal when something of that nature happens, he said, and nothing ever came of them. Among those with Penn, Callahan recognized two of the teens from the crowd the previous night, whom the officer believed to be part of the gang coming after me throwing bricks. The teens were arrested on the spot. Both of the youths, one was 15 years old, the other 17, were eventually charged with impeding an officer. Callahan also filed a juvenile complaint for the arrest of the teen who had cursed at him on charges of disorderly conduct and resisting arrest. 
In all, four black teens and one adult, Peters, faced charges. As far as Callahan and the Alexandria Police Department were concerned, the skirmish with Strickland and the other boys was yet another chapter in the force's commitment to upholding the law equally and fairly. For Callahan, the incident in the McDonald's parking lot wasn't a racial thing because he treated all suspects the same. I've had more trouble with white people than black people. Callahan had acted in self-defense. In fact, the officer had shown commendable restraint, given that a mob taunted him and threw rocks and bottles at him during the arrest. He would have been justified in shooting people under those conditions, said Russell Hawes, who had served as Alexandria police chief for 36 years and had enforced segregation for most of that time. Any grievances against the officer were unfounded. I feel people complain about Callahan and would like to see him fired because he is contentious and does his job, Sergeant Cassidy told a reporter. The officer had fans far beyond the police department. Three separate men's organizations in Alexandria quickly adopted pro-Callahan resolutions, prefiguring the celebration in his honor. For the Alexandria Police Department and its sympathizers, the black community's reaction, not Callahan's actions, was the problem. Rebellious hoodlums shook the traditional outward placidity of the city's police-community relations, as Hawes put it. Other than a few unruly young black people, we don't usually have too much trouble with the colored. There were two black officers on the force, of 175 in total. And as Hawes described them, they were well-schooled, intelligent, moderate-thinking individuals. Still, the police chief could not ignore the fact that Callahan was a divisive presence in Arlandria. Black residents had been asking that Callahan be assigned to different duties. And now Hawes finally transferred Callahan from the Arlandria beat to patrol duty in the all-white western part of city. The move was not made in reaction to Callahan's penchant for violence, but for his own safety. Callahan, viewed as a bad apple by black residents and a hero by many white ones, was the starkest example of the fundamental problems in how the Alexandria Police Department policed segregated neighborhoods. The local Urban League had tried to improve police-community relations by bringing six volunteers from the police department and six black residents together for a series of discussions that began in January 1969, about nine months before the Callahan-Strickland encounter. After four meetings, the officers refused to participate any further. They were no longer interested, Chief Hawes presumed. The League had no choice but to cancel the program. That spring, the League's Director of Community Relations, Leo Burroughs, spearheaded an education initiative to inform black residents, especially older residents, of rights and privileges they may not know they possessed after living under Jim Crow. Burroughs also began organizing residents to protest police brutality. The League had supported a woman named Zelma Carter Kennedy in making a formal complaint against the police officers, whom she claimed violently twisted her arm, slammed a car door on her legs, and called her nigger repeatedly as they arrested her without informing her of any charge. The officers denied causing the injuries, saying that Kennedy had been uncooperative. They described her as an angry, emotionally distressed woman who had no cause for complaint. What happened to her probably was her own fault, 
Police Inspector Elsie Saunders concluded. The outrage surrounding Keith Strickland's beating by Callahan, though it was just the latest instance in a particular officer's history of violence, presented the Urban League with an opportunity to advance its police reform campaign. Black residents wanted accountability as well as assurances that Strickland would be the last young person Callahan would be able to harm. They would no longer tolerate his presence in their lives. About 100 black demonstrators marched to the police station on October 11th, demanding the firing of Callahan and Chief Hawes. Burroughs, who organized and spoke at the rally, criticized the police brutality and injustice that we're all tired of. The Urban League had been pushing for the removal of Hawes for years, and although the latest Callahan incident inspired the protest, residents were demonstrating because, as Burroughs said, he ain't the only one. I don't say every cop in Alexandria ain't no good, but we got enough. We want to get rid of them. Local organizers, joined by activists from other parts of the greater D.C. area, made clear that the lack of official action in response to police violence would itself generate community violence. The issue was bigger than a bad apple on the Alexandria police force. Our problems do not stop at political or geographical boundaries. The Reverend Douglas Moore, chairman of D.C.'s Black United Front, announced from the podium. He noted that 32 black residents had been killed by D.C. officers in 1969 so far, and that just two weeks prior, police in Prince George's County, Maryland, shot and killed a man named Rene Richardson as he carried a child in his arms. The white man only understands one language, the language of violence, Moore concluded pledging the Black United Front's security force and arsenal of guns to support Black Alexandrians if necessary. Burroughs acknowledged that a shift in tactics was imminent. They don't want to sit down and talk to Black people, he charged, which may have been a reference to the dissolution of the regular conversations between the Urban League and the police department. When a man is unwilling to talk, you have to fight him. Chief Hawes was indeed unwilling. He told reporters gathered in his office during the protest that he would be glad to meet with anyone, but he refused to go outside the police station or to engage any of the demonstrators. As city officials continued to ignore the growing chorus of black demands for Callahan's ouster, as well as the calls for more black police officers, compulsory sensitivity training for the police, and weekly meetings between the police and black residents, Alexandria was rocked by unprecedented disorder. The sparks of the rebellion were originally lit a year earlier by an encounter between a black teen and a white policeman near George Washington High School's football field. The site had been the regular location of clashes between students and police, and on Friday, September 6, 1968, roving gangs of Negro youths, according to the Washington Post, fought with white students after a game. A police officer with a canine at his side had arrested black 18-year-old Louis H. Winbush aggressively, and according to 17-year-old Washington student Wendell Evans, a group of about 75 went to the police station, throwing rocks at police as they marched, leaving only after Winbush had been freed on bond. 
Evans, a leader of the school's Afro-American organization, which advocated for a black studies curriculum and student-led community patrols as an alternative to police, would later be involved in the events that led to the widespread unrest the following year. On September 20, 1969, two weeks before Strickland's beating, Evans was among a group of black teenagers who went to a 7-Eleven near the stadium. The one employee running the store, 21-year-old James Hanshue, refused to let more than five enter at a time, perhaps fearing the youths would attempt to steal merchandise or rob him. The black teens challenged this seemingly arbitrary rule, and Hanshue called the police. When the officers came, Evans allegedly threw his sunglasses at Sergeant Cassidy, the same officer who would go on to defend Callahan in the press, and elbowed another officer in the nose. One of Evans's friends reportedly jumped in and was hit on the head with a nightstick. A total of 20 officers arrived to restore order. A month later, shortly after the Friday night football game on October 17th had ended, 24-year-old patrolman Louis Barr was hit by a rock thrown from a group of about 100 young black people. Barr, who was there for crowd control, received three stitches while the windshield of his unmarked police car was smashed. Sporadic violence against law enforcement authorities quickly evolved into mass violence against businesses, public institutions, and prominent white individuals in the community. From the evening of October 17th to the early morning of October 18th, a series of fires were started in Alexandria's fashionable Old Town section, many of them by young black people throwing Molotov cocktails. Police later attributed the damage caused to a total of eight homes and businesses that night to roving bands of youth traveling on foot or in cars who were not deterred by local police clad in riot gear nor by a supplemental force of 48 Virginia state troopers. The Urban League's peaceful protests resumed Saturday afternoon as a group of 30 black residents picketed in front of Chief Hall's home for 90 minutes, calling again for him and his bad apple, Callahan, to be fired. When the sun went down on Saturday, October 18th, exactly two weeks after Callahan's beating of Keith Strickland, Alexandria continued to burn despite the escalatory moves by the police. Rebels hurled three Molotov cocktails at Vice Mayor Eugene W. Zimmerman's electrical contracting business in the center of Arlandia at around 9 o'clock that night. Two hours later, a firebomb hit Sloan Furniture Company, scorching the store's carpeting and completely destroying several pieces of furniture. Just before 11.30, the Alexandria Redevelopment and Housing Authority's new administration building was struck with a Molotov cocktail, although the bomb failed to ignite. The night of Sunday, October 19th, police in riot gear patrolled the area to prevent any new incidents of terrorism, and Hawes deployed an additional special squad to the scene. The three nights of rebellion ended with a firebomb smashing the front window of a local grocery store without igniting. The Alexandria City Council had not acted in the face of police violence against black youth, but the rebellion forced them to reconsider. At the urging of black community leaders, who continued to demand a public hearing on the Callahan incident and an opportunity to air complaints about police community relations in general, the council convened a special public session at 7 o'clock on the evening of Monday, October 20th. 
Beforehand, council members were divided about how to respond. Some felt more force was needed to quell the unrest, while others recognized that fundamental reform of the police department was necessary. I am confident that the white majority wants to be unequivocally on the side of supporting the police, was how an anonymous city councilman described the situation. The blacks, on the other hand, want absolute condemnation of the police department. If we come down hard on either side, the city winds up in trouble. About 150 people came to the meeting, most of them black youths. Some in the overflow crowd stood against the walls of the council chamber or spilled out into the hallway. According to observers, it was the largest crowd of blacks ever to attend a city council meeting in Alexandria. Victor Hernandez, the chairman of the Urban League Police Community Relations Task Force, presented a petition with 900 signatures demanding the firing of Callahan. Hernandez and others complained of the unequal treatment that black residents received from police in the city, a point that was reinforced by a sympathetic white resident. Noting that a street football game prompted the incident with Callahan that in turn set off the unrest, this person pointed out, I have kids who play in the street, and over six years they have never been warned. After hearing testimony from numerous residents, the city council agreed to implement a series of police reforms. It committed to establishing an office at the municipal level to handle all citizen complaints against public employees and offices, to supporting the creation of a specially trained two-person police team that would work to build trust between police and all elements of the city and to requiring officers to participate in regular meetings with community members in the style of the Urban League's failed conversation program. Ira Robinson, one of the black residents who addressed the council, pointed out that black people had asked for these same changes for a year, but the council had remained silent. A few matches and a little gasoline has gotten implementation. It's really shameful, Robinson scolded. Even as it endorsed these reforms, the city council reaffirmed its complete confidence in the dedication and competence of the Alexandria Police Department. Many residents were not satisfied by the city council's reforms, believing them too limited to make a difference. At the close of the meeting, about 75 young black people gathered in front of the city hall, breaking a light fixture and overturning trash cans, they listened to speeches by Rufus Mayfield and a handful of other activists from Washington, D.C., who, like Reverend Moore, had come to support our black brothers. Marvin D. Vincent of the Black Revolutionaries Party arrived in Alexandria in African dress, as the press described it, and preached black solidarity from his truck, to which he had attached a loudspeaker. Police apprehended Vincent almost immediately for operating a loudspeaker without a permit, and Mayfield then led about 50 demonstrators from City Hall to police headquarters four blocks away to demand that Vincent be freed. Vincent was let go on bond at 11.30 p.m. About 20 of the protesters left City Hall and gathered on the streets of Arlandria 15 minutes later. When police asked the small crowd to disperse, most did. A handful of young men and women remained, all of whom were arrested and charged with the disorderly conduct, abusive language, and unlawful assembly violations. Police had arrested them in the belief that this rump group could have restarted the vandalism and firebombing.
Black residents demanded repeatedly in October 1969 that Callahan be arrested on charges of assault, but their concerns were largely ignored. The Alexandria Police Department had never issued a warrant against an officer accusing him of assault, and it wasn't going to start now, even facing an uprising. Hawes did order an inquiry into the charges against Callahan, just to reassure myself, as he put it, that the officer had not resorted to excessive force. Yet the inquiry was run by law enforcement officials, and even though 28-year-old Albert A. Beverly, the first black policeman to join the force in 1965, was among them, they confirmed that Callahan had responded to the situation properly. The FBI launched a brief investigation of its own. The unrest in Alexandria had received extensive coverage in the pages of the Washington Post— and the city also brought in a team from Michigan State University to evaluate the problem of police-community relations. The researchers concluded the violence and animosity was primarily due to the city government's lack of credibility among black residents. Callahan did not face any repercussions for his actions from authorities in Alexandria. Sadie Penn did file a $300,000 suit in the U.S. District Court against him under a statute forbidding police abuse. On behalf of her son, Penn sought $100,000 from the city for being negligent in training Callahan for police work and for failing to control him, and $200,000 in exemplary and compensatory damages from Callahan. The suit claimed that, without cause, justification, or excuse, Callahan used great force and violence in his interaction with Strickland, and then subsequently brought false charges against the teen to conceal his vicious, malicious, and criminal attack. Callahan denied the brutality accusations, and the suit was eventually dismissed. On October 29, 1969, after the firebombing had ended and the week-long police investigation into the assault on Keith Strickland was complete, the newly formed Alexandria Citizens Committee hosted a 300-person dinner in honor of Callahan and the police department. As attendees saw it, both the officer and his department were the victims of the city's black community— and as the UCCA had done in Cairo, in Alexandria, the white elite mobilized in the wake of black violence to reinforce law and order. The proceeds from the committee's $5 per plate dinner, about $35 today, went to the Alexandria Police Boys Club. The well-dressed white diners were mostly local businessmen and their wives, but also present were a handful of police officers and elected officials, such as the prominent state representative James M. Thompson, who had consistently lobbied the city council in defense of Callahan and the Alexandria police over previous weeks. The Citizens' Committee circulated a petition at the dinner that was the exact opposite of the demands the Alexandria Urban League presented to the city council in the wake of the rebellion. The all-white committee called for an end to considerations leading to establishment of police review boards and the like, the prosecution of interstate meddlers, exciters, and agitators who encouraged rioting—this was clearly aimed at Reverend Moore and Marvin Vincent, above all—and an increase in the size of the police force. The police department strongly supported each of these causes. Fred Pettit, who served as the Alexandria Registrar of Voters, opened the dinner by telling the enthusiastic attendees, 
We live in a wonderful country, the home of the brave but the gutless, the gutless being those who refuse to get behind the police. Pettit wasn't talking about black people explicitly, but about what I believe is right. I'm not against anybody whether they are black, white, green, or pink, as he assured the crowd. I've got as many friends of the colored race as anybody in Alexandria, and therefore the campaign for law and order was entirely free of prejudice. Pettit's co-host, Glenn Faxon, the retired master of the Alexandria-Washington Masonic Lodge, griped about the decline of the family and the American Civil Liberties Union lawyers, who are about as American as the hammer and sickle. The anti-communist remark elicited one of the loudest cheers of the evening. Callahan was humbled by the tribute and by the who's who of white Alexandria coming out to celebrate him. The committee presented Callahan with a plaque commending the officer for upholding the thin blue line between anarchy and order. Callahan walked to the podium to accept the token of appreciation. Speaking's not my bag, he said. I'm more uncomfortable up here than any place I've been in the past month, he added, joking, though his meaning was clear. He was more comfortable policing black neighborhoods and brutalizing black teens than he was speaking in public. The local juvenile and domestic relations district court further reinforced the white establishment's support of Callahan by condemning his assailants. Judge Irene L. Prescott had presided over the June 1968 case involving the teen who complained that Callahan beat him and called him all kinds of names. Now, Keith Strickland and a 17-year-old who allegedly threw a brick at Callahan during the uprising were sitting in Prescott's courtroom as she heard further testimony of the officer's violent tendencies. When Callahan took the stand, he admitted that he pointed his gun at Strickland and considered pulling the trigger after Strickland allegedly hit him with the two-by-four, but changed his mind and instead knocked him to the ground. Once again, Prescott believed Callahan's side of the story over that of the black teens, finding that Strickland did commit assault and battery and resisted arrest, and that the other youth impeded Callahan in the performance of his duty. Prescott placed both young men on indefinite probation. Callahan's use of force was fully vindicated. Glorified by the city elite, Callahan did not face professional consequences for his violent behavior, but municipal authorities did pressure Chief Hawes to step down. In mid-December, Hawes finally announced his retirement at the age of 65, having served in the city's top law enforcement role for close to four decades. As Aaron McKinney, the head of the Black Community Action Council, had explained in October, Hawes oversaw a culture within the police department that effectively gave permission to officers like Callahan to abuse black residents. The police force reflects his leadership, McKinney said. Time has passed him by, especially with black people. He still refers to us as the coloreds. He just must be replaced. Municipal authorities agreed that Hawes' approach was behind the times. I think Major Hawes has been a very good police chief, Alexandria Mayor Charles E. Beatley said, but he belongs to a generation gone by. It was time for a younger chief, perhaps with slightly less reactionary attitudes, to meet the challenges of crime control in the post-civil rights era.
a middle-aged black woman who talked like she has been saving up the words for years, as reporters described her, offered one view of the problem with Hawes. If you are a racist and your wife is a racist, you can't teach your kids anything else. How can an officer who has never respected a black man teach his policemen to respect them? As she and many other black residents understood, the Alexandria Police Department would employ anti-black policing practices as long as Jim Crow holdovers like Hawes were at its helm. But the problem ran deeper than Hawes and the older generation. Roughly eight months after the Callahan incident, and five months after the police chief's resignation, the city experienced another, more destructive rebellion. On Friday, May 29, 1970, a 24-year-old white 7-Eleven clerk named John Hanna shot and killed our Landria resident, Robin Gibson, a 19-year-old black high school junior, after accusing Gibson of stealing razor blades from the store. The ensuing revolt involved an estimated 700 people, irresponsible elements in the black community, as Mayor Beatley described them, who shouted, threw rocks, and set fires, including at the childhood home of Confederate General Robert E. Lee, which was partially destroyed by several Molotov cocktails. The violence lasted for six consecutive nights, ending in the arrest of 14 people on charges of disorderly conduct, destroying private property, and using abusive language. For black residents, the rebellion was not caused by a trigger-happy 7-Eleven manager, but by city officials who seemed largely unresponsive to their needs, including the need not to get shot. At a city council meeting the week before Gibson's murder, Vice Mayor Zimmerman, whose electrical contracting firm suffered significant fire damage during the rebellion in October 1969, voiced the city's paternalistic stance toward black Alexandrians. Look at all we've done for you. Look at all the public housing you have here. Zimmerman argued, You're a lot better off in Alexandria than Arlington and Fairfax. In his mind, black residents should be nothing but grateful to their elected officials, but black people weren't having it. They've got to stop saying that because we're black, they're doing us a favor to give us a break, as a black lawyer in Alexandria put it. Gibson's killing had been the last straw. Mark Boston of the Alexandria Urban League said, and commenting on the violent protests that had followed. Now we can hardly control the people because they tried to abide by the system and got nowhere. Despite the range of direct action tactics that black residents used to attempt to force change, the Callahan affair confirmed that heavy-handed cops would be exalted and their victims would be punished. Gibson's murder demonstrated just how vulnerable black people were to violence directed at them from white people in the city, whether uniformed or not. The double standard in Alexandria was clear. One set of laws and customs applied to white citizens, another to black citizens. People don't believe in the credibility of the system of laws, Boston stressed. I won't call it justice. Even those white people who styled themselves more progressive could not overcome their own blind spots. There was a feeling that a white man can kill a Negro and not be brought to justice, a city councilman said. I don't think that is true. Not today. Not in Alexandria. It was true. 
Although John Hanna admitted to planting a knife near Gibson's dead body to make it appear as though he killed him in self-defense, an all-white jury of his peers sentenced Hanna to a mere two years in prison for manslaughter. He was released after serving eight months. The councilmen and other white officials may have dismissed or ignored blatant injustices, but black residents saw them everywhere. They lived in a city where bad apple police officers with a history of brutality were lauded as heroes and where white men could murder black teenagers without serious repercussion. To the white people of Alexandria, bad cops didn't exist. The Arlandria community had learned to tolerate the great pain and suffering of everyday life under segregation and poverty. They had little choice in the matter, but after a bad apple cop seemed to terrorize the community's children, these conditions became intolerable. Yet when their appeals to the city council and nonviolent demonstrations failed to convince officials to implement meaningful reforms, or when a white civilian murdered a black person and faced almost no consequences, the community rebelled, as they did in hundreds of other cities, when authorities demonstrated an unwillingness to provide basic protections. It was clear the bad apple sprung from a poisoned tree, and many concluded that it could only be cut down by violence of their own. Chapter 6 The Schools When considering the history of racism in the United States, many Americans believe that the North has long been more enlightened than the South, and that the struggle for racial equality is primarily a story of the former Confederate states dragging their feet but eventually accepting black citizenship. Although explicit laws prohibiting black people from sharing public facilities with white people did not exist in northern states, where, in theory, black people could patronize stores and restaurants or use public transportation as they pleased, there were many commonalities between the two regions, and any kind of moralistic distinctions between them tend to crumble under even modest scrutiny. Segregation defines the nation. Most people across the United States, at mid-century and today, live next door to someone of the same racial or ethnic identity, and this residential segregation both reveals and determines American life, nowhere more immediately than in its public schools. Often seen as a fundamental difference between South and North, school integration played out in similar ways in the Southern and Northern states, even if segregation was not the law of the land in the latter. On both sides of the Mason-Dixon line, schools were sites of Black insurgency and white counterinsurgency, and of rebellions that began on school grounds before spreading into the streets. The process of school integration stretched from the Brown v. Board of Education decision in 1954, which outlawed racial segregation in American public schools, through the early 1970s and even beyond. Northern and Southern schools began to integrate simultaneously following the ruling in Brown, and at a similar pace. Segregation of American schools did not begin to decline in a meaningful way until the late 1960s and early 1970s, as federal pressure and incentives established by the Elementary and Secondary Education Act of 1965 compelled school systems across the country to integrate. 
After reaching a low point in the 1980s, both residential and school segregation have increased since 1990. The United States is more segregated today than it was before the Brown decision, and many areas in the North are more segregated than anywhere in the South. As public schools across the United States slowly integrated beginning in the 1960s, cheerleading emerged as a flashpoint. In every region, black women were regularly excluded from participation in cheerleading squads, and black students, black communities, and black organizations such as the NAACP consistently challenged these particular discriminatory policies. In September 1967, after a federal court order finally forced the black and white high schools in Cairo, Illinois to combine, Black football players refused to play because the student body had not elected a single black cheerleader. These sought-after positions were determined by election in many areas of the country at the time. A year later, at least 200 black students walked out of Argo Community High School in the Chicago metropolitan area to demand a black homecoming queen and that half the spots on the six-woman cheerleading squad be reserved for black teens. In Gastonia, North Carolina, in April 1969, 250 black students walked out of class at Ashley High School to protest the election of an all-white cheerleading team. The school had started to integrate in 1966, and by 1969, black students comprised 20% of the student body. Nearly half of the young women who participated in cheerleading tryouts at Ashley High were black— representing 12 of the 26 total hopefuls. But the white student majority easily prevented their inclusion on the team. Most of the cheerleading-related demonstrations started and ended peacefully. But sometimes the police were called in to contain the black students, and from there demonstrations could expand into rebellion or full-blown race war, as the new Pittsburgh Courier described the violence that emerged in Aliquippa, Pennsylvania, in May 1970, after the cheerleading team refused to accept black girls. Whether efforts to integrate cheerleading squads were based on nonviolent or violent tactics, the protesters usually voiced broad critiques of white supremacy and racial injustice, as well as demands aimed at improving public education and the community as a whole. In May 1969, four black girls tried out for the cheerleading team at the newly integrated Walter M. Williams High School in Burlington, North Carolina, only to be booed by white students during tryouts and denied places on the squad. Soon, black and white students were fighting each other on school grounds, and black and white parents were complaining to City Hall and the police chief. Before long, Burlington was burning, leading to the deployment of the National Guard and the killing of a black male student by police. Black students launched protests in this era in response to a range of injustices, pressuring school districts to establish robust black studies requirements for all students and to hire more black teachers. They often rooted their demands in the bedrock principles of pride, equal inclusion, and self-protection that were of the central tenets of black power. Black student activists also frequently demanded the removal of all prejudiced white teachers— especially guidance counselors who seemed to intentionally sabotage black students in their efforts to attend college or vocational schools, 
and they pressed for black leadership roles and representation in school organizations. In Harrisburg, the state capital of Pennsylvania, a student movement that started in February 1969 based its campaign on all of these demands, but included one demand that seemed to go beyond education, at least at first glance, an end to police brutality, broadly defined to include not only excessive use of force, but also routine harassment. Yet police violence was not unrelated to the experience and prospects of black students. Like housing projects, urban public schools were sites of new targeted enforcement during the war on crime in the late 1960s and early 1970s. Federal law enforcement grants supported the creation of school security forces, groups of police officers who roamed the hallways and classrooms of urban public schools and increasingly replaced school-based disciplinary bodies. Electronic surveillance equipment, such as closed-circuit cameras, were installed on school buses and on campuses. As schools across the country were slowly becoming more integrated, which in turn generated massive white resistance, majority black schools became even more isolated. The latter were also more policed and more fortified long before the zero-tolerance disciplinary policies of the late 1990s. The origins of the school-to-prison pipeline that scholars and activists have identified in recent years can be found in the era of Black Rebellion. The tendency on the part of school officials across the nation to summon law enforcement to respond to disciplinary and administrative matters involving Black students made urban public schools particularly likely to see rebellions. In September 1970, as black students pressured school administrators to improve course offerings in black culture and history at Asbury Park High School in New Jersey, white and black students were fighting in the hallways. By the end of the month, the school closed for two days as rock-throwing, looting, burning, and sniping broke out in the city. When the school reopened, 25 policemen patrolled its hallways. Many black students stopped attending— why would we show up to a prison? The police would be patrolling the halls, and once we step out of line, they'll throw us in jail, a young woman said. It was a prescient comment. The police arrested eight students that day. Black and white students came together to propose a less punitive approach. Use student volunteers to patrol the hallways, rather than uniformed police officers with guns. Superintendent Donald E. Smith said the student patrols were an excellent idea, but that the police had an important role to play. At the moment, I believe the situation is too volatile to throw these young people into it and expect them to cope. Smith and many other school officials in America could not imagine crossing off the police as an option to deal with student unrest. Black rebellion at the turn of the decade frequently began with young people in or out of school settings. Yet in many cases, rebellion started with young people protesting as students and organizing movements for racial justice within their schools and communities. In Harrisburg, Pennsylvania, and in Burlington and Greensboro, North Carolina, among other American cities, student-led rebellions spilled over into the larger community and involved widespread violence. That this violence arose from within the public school system suggests that these rebellions were not outbursts of criminality, 
but reactions to unequal educational and socioeconomic conditions. The violence also illuminates, perhaps better than anything else in this period, how the state was increasingly turning to law enforcement to manage the consequences of such conditions. Authorities most often resolved rebellions that originated in schools by arresting and suspending students en masse. The tens of thousands of black junior high and high school students who participated in various school-based protest movements had spent their early childhoods watching the boycotts and marches of the civil rights movement, but they were still waiting for change to arrive in their daily lives. Now, approaching adulthood and influenced by the growing militancy of parts of the black freedom movement, they embraced new strategies and goals to realize the unfilled promises of their predecessors. Public schools, where this rising generation spent most of their days, were in many cases the primary battlegrounds in their struggle. In recognition of Negro History Week in February 1969, the administration of John Harris High in Harrisburg, Pennsylvania, held a school-wide viewing of a film on black history. Many white students skipped the compulsory event, and many of those who did attend laughed during the movie and walked out before it ended. Black students retaliated by boycotting the next assembly— a presentation to the students of military uniforms by the Women's Army Corps on Friday, February 14th. More than 400 black students, representing one-third of the student body, went to the cafeteria and the choir room instead of the auditorium. Fights broke out over the remainder of the afternoon. School officials called in the police and dismissed classes 45 minutes early. That weekend, black Harris High students met with their peers from Harrisburg's other high school, William Penn. Together, they drafted a set of demands for school administrators at both institutions, now that the protest had their attention. Three hundred black Harrisburg students came ready to present their vision for a more inclusive system to school officials, teachers, and community members at a sit-in they launched at William Penn first thing Monday morning, February 17, 1969. Principal Paul E. Porter spoke with them. The school district is trying desperately hard to hire as many black teachers as possible, Porter assured the students, but finding qualified black teachers was difficult. You don't find teachers by just snapping your fingers, he said. The students did not leave the conversation feeling confident that their demands would be taken seriously. John Harris students, who were not afforded a meeting with their principal, adopted more disruptive tactics. They spent the day in the auditorium, hallways, and foyers of the school instead of in class. Students at Camp Curtin Junior High joined the protest by starting fires in a wastebasket, in an air duct, and on an auditorium seat, all of which were quickly extinguished. The district decided to enlist the police to handle the black student protesters, a move that pushed the protest out of the classrooms and into the streets. Anticipating lunch period trouble, Harris High administrators summoned police to the schools, where officers would remain stationed for the rest of the school year. Our role was to try to keep the crowds under control and disperse them in an orderly fashion, Police Chief Martin Watts explained. When the officers arrived, the students did indeed disperse. 
Hundreds of them spent the remainder of the afternoon throwing snowballs at cars, blocking traffic, and assaulting people. A 42-year-old person described as a suburban Harrisburg man suffered a fractured nose after allegedly being punched through his open car window near the high school. At 1.30 p.m., about 30 students walked into the Tim Dutrick department store and helped themselves to an estimated $2,000 worth of merchandise, including a number of $85 suede coats. Five students were arrested on charges of assault and disorderly conduct, that night, City Superintendent David Parker announced that schools would be closed the following day to allow for a period of cooling off. As officials saw it, the situation in the schools after they reopened on Wednesday, February 19th, amounted to anarchy. At Camp Curtin, black students convened unauthorized assemblies instead of going to class, while others beat a white student— Four white teachers at the junior high threatened to go home because they could not control the pupils. William Penn students also held an unauthorized assembly where they gave inflammatory racist speeches and burned the school flag. At Harris, two black students allegedly cut a white student on the arm with a razor blade in the boys' bathroom. Just before noon, 300 students swarmed into the parking lot of a shopping center, shouting obscenities at customers and throwing eggs at a hot dog stand. Roving bands of students reportedly converged on a lunch counter near William Penn, shouting and screaming as they threw rocks. Others defaced their schools with spray paint. Superintendent Parker spoke of an open rebellion against white-controlled institutions. What we have here is a group of militant Negroes bent on the destruction of our enterprise. Parker assured residents that the district was doing all we can to stabilize the situation, but the task was daunting. The problems we face are the problems of our city plus the country. With the approval of the school board, the city established a plainclothes police force at Penn, Harris, Camp Curtin, and Edison Junior High School to assuage the fears of white parents who threatened to pull their children out of school until authorities acted to solve the breakdown in law enforcement. Most parents still kept their children home despite the arrival of the plainclothes officers the next day, February 20th. Less than 50% of the students at the city's high schools and junior high schools, and according to some reports, not a single white student at Harris, showed up for school in the morning for several days. The students who did attend, the majority of whom were black, found that plainclothes police patrolled inside the now-troubled schools while uniformed officers cruised the surrounding area, looking for potential rioters. Teachers were expected to use the police as they saw fit. During a vocational workshop at Harris on February 20th, an instructor called a plainclothes officer to his class to address an unruly student. The officer arrested the student, attracting a crowd of 200 black students who started a boisterous confrontation. The plainclothes officer used his walkie-talkie to inform headquarters of the situation. Repressive actions by the authorities fueled student rebellion, and student rebellion fueled repressive actions. In response to the officer's call from Harris, a squad of 35 officers in riot gear rushed to the school. This was the moment law enforcement had anticipated. 
the handcuffed student was taken to jail, and the gathered black students voiced a vigorous complaint about the armored officers in their hallways. They started throwing tables and chairs, using a desk to smash the windows of the assistant principal's office, cleaning out the refrigerators in the home economics department and dumping their contents on the floor, overturning a vending machine, and lighting a fire in the girls' restroom. At Hamilton Elementary School, children reportedly set small fires that day. The rebellion had spread throughout the entire school system. The city and the police department tried to arrest their way out of the trouble. Harrisburg Mayor Albert Straub called for the detainment of the known troublemakers and promised that property destruction at public schools would not be tolerated. By the end of the night, as stores were burglarized, windows around town were smashed, and white residents continued to report attacks, eight male students from both Harris and Penn were arrested on charges ranging from disorderly conduct to larceny and sent to the Dauphin County Prison, pending action from the probation office. The next morning... February 21st, an 18-year-old and two younger students were arrested at their homes on charges of riotous destruction of property at Harris. A total of 22 black students were arrested for their roles in the rebellion in and around school, and another 27 were indefinitely suspended. Parents and community leaders on both sides were furious. We are very displeased and disheartened over the militaristic approach being taken— the Black Coalition of Harrisburg wrote in a statement the evening of the 21st. We feel that both the state and local government have overreacted, turning our communities into armed camps. The coalition called for the withdrawal of the police from the schools and for the district to meet the Black students' initial demands. While the Black Coalition's meeting was taking place that evening, 300 white parents gathered at the local electrician's union hall, proposing their own ideas about how to bring a full return of calm to the schools. Some simply rejected black residents' claims about police violence. What kind of brutality exists when police are attacked, one attendee shouted. Many white parents believed black students had terrorized the hallways and classrooms, they shared stories of their children being assaulted and made clear that they felt the city had been too lenient. Congressman George W. Gekas offered a well-received solution, a school police force, which would not be armed with guns, clubs, and the like, to act as intermediaries between students and their superiors. Mayor Straub assured his constituents that the state police and the district attorney's office had pledged their full cooperation to whatever degree is required to end this disorder, and that the Pennsylvania National Guard stood ready for a confrontation. Although the violence in Harrisburg's public schools ended before additional police or even military force was brought to bear on the black students involved— the courts and the school system moved forward with punishing the students arrested on charges related to the rebellion. With broad support for their community, Harrisburg's black students challenged the suspensions and jailing of those who were sacrificed because they stood up with us and continued to press their demands with school and city officials. By early March, the school board agreed to create a special committee to investigate alleged acts of discrimination, to convene monthly meetings on the racist situation, to hire more black teachers, and to institute a broad educational program in black history as soon as possible.
Yet black students left the final negotiations with the school board, believing their efforts had been in vain. To many, the expulsions of six Harris students and five Penn students, and the suspension of 27 others for their involvement in the protest at both schools, were the most tangible outcomes of the entire episode. The black student morale is low, explained Craig Humes, a black student union representative and chairman of the Youth for the Advancement of Black Studies group. We feel the situation in the schools has not changed. Harris student Kathy Sims argued that the school board had not communicated effectively with black students and had tampered with and misinterpreted the students' demands. We have no information of what is going on, Sims said of the school board's lack of transparency in implementing the programs that it promised them. Students felt even more isolated, with nothing concrete for us to hold on to, Emma Givens of Harris High said. A lot of students have been expelled, and teachers have withdrawn from us. By May 1969, the Harrisburg public school system had hired five black counselors, and, although the students did not ask for it, had provided new training for teachers, including a course on the dynamics of urban cultures and exercises to develop sensitive concern around stereotyping, scapegoating, and racist references. An uneasy calm descended on Harrisburg's public schools for the remainder of the school year after the rebellion. But that summer, Harrisburg would explode. The student protest in February was just the opening act in a larger drama. In late June, an incident of police brutality would set off the cycle of rebellion. Police tear-gassed hundreds of black residents, and residents reciprocated by hurling rocks and bottles setting fires, and vandalizing property. After two nights, the rebellion came to an end when a black Harris High student was shot in the back by a white police officer. Harrisburg was far from the only city that saw a student rebellion expand into a more general uprising. The violence in Burlington, North Carolina, started out in much the same way as the rebellion in Harrisburg, a very public display of cruelty by white students toward black students. At Walter Williams High School on Wednesday, May 14, 1969, the day all of the young black women who tried out for the cheerleading squad were rejected, brawls broke out between black and white students in the hallways, which prompted authorities to close the school early because of the tension. As in Harrisburg three months before, many white parents kept their children home from school the next day, citing the black student's behavior. Furor over the cheerleading team led black students to call for a new committee at Walter Williams to relate to the needs of black students. For more black representation in the school administration, for a black student newspaper that would tell it like it is, for an all-black board of inquiry to investigate violent incidents at the school, and for a black cultural center on the campus. On Friday, May 16th, at around two in the afternoon, the students formed a line and marched across town to the Burlington Public Schools Administration Building, where they were joined in solidarity by a group of students from the all-black Jordan Sellers High School. Superintendent Dr. Frank Prophet spoke with the students briefly as they assembled in front of the building. He refused to negotiate and instead threatened to charge the students with trespassing. 
Administrators called in Burlington's police, who themselves called in county deputies and the highway patrol for backup. The protesting students stormed the administration building to force a conversation over their demands and were met by uniformed officers. A total of 17 people were arrested, 12 black students, five black men, and charged with disorderly conduct or damage to a public building, or both. Police drove the remaining protesters from the area. Some allegedly began throwing rocks on Rohit Street, the commercial hub of the segregated Richmond Hill neighborhood. The intervention of law enforcement transformed a student-led protest challenging racism within local schools into a larger conflict between the community and the police. After dark, rock-throwing brought officers in riot gear into Richmond Hill. The confrontations with police continued, as did the property damage. 100 highway patrol officers, 50 Burlington police, agents from the State Bureau of Investigation, sheriff's deputies, and even prison guards joined forces to attempt to suppress the rebellion. When police in riot gear lined up on Rohit Street, a big crowd of black people— must have been 300 of them, started coming down Rohit, just raining down bricks, rocks, anything they could throw onto the cops in their patrol cars. As Odell Isley, one of the first black officers on the Burlington police force, later described the moment. The first firebomb went off at around 10 o'clock on Friday the 16th at the white-owned Foxfish Market on Rohit Street, an estimated crowd of 250 to 300 black people threw rocks, bottles, and debris at the firefighters attempting to extinguish the blaze that night. Police brought in a pepper fog gas machine, which in seconds could cover a large area with an irritant stronger than tear gas to disperse the crowd. The chemical weapon cleared the scene, but it did not deter further violence. For nearly two hours, a crowd of jeering blacks, who cursed and attempted to antagonize the officers, began to gather and grow more and more out of hand, according to Burlington's Daily Times News. Police moved in to restore order by firing their shotguns in the air, and they were met in return by sniper fire. With local and state law enforcement struggling to establish order, the National Guard was called in. By midnight, 400 guardsmen prowled the streets of Richmond Hill, using floodlights to illuminate the neighborhood and forming small units with police and highway patrolmen to search for suspects. Yet the rebels remained one step ahead of law enforcement. At around one in the morning, another firebomb went off at the white-owned Country Grocery Store, also on Rohit Street. Gunshots could be heard throughout the early morning. When the rebellion began... Tarantine junior high school student Leon Mebin and a few of his friends went out into the streets, as did most other residents in Richmond Hill, whether they were participating or not. The 15-year-old Mebin, tall and slender, was probably wearing the gray felt coat he barely took off and on which he had affixed pieces of cloth spelling out the lyrics to Mustang Sally, an homage to James Brown, his favorite singer. At around 3.30, Mebin and other young boys were hanging out in front of the burned-out country grocery, perhaps checking out the damage the fire had caused. Police later claimed that Mebin and about ten other teenagers were looting the store and that Mebin ran into the crossfire during an exchange between police and snipers. There was a lot of sniper fire coming from inside houses, beneath houses, and the boy was between the sniper fire and police, 
a National Guardsman who witnessed the shooting recalled. He also mentioned that the boy had been throwing bottles and rocks at police earlier in an attempt to justify what followed. Mebin's mother, Zenobia Mebin, didn't buy any of it. Her son never had any disciplinary problems at school and had never been arrested. A boy who was there told me that they were just looking at the burned-out building. There was nothing left to loot. According to police, the officers ordered Mebin and the other teens to halt and open fire when the young men did not listen to them. Mebin was hit a total of 17 times. He was pronounced dead on arrival at the hospital. He did not have any loot on his person. Assuming the violence would escalate once news spread of Mebin's shooting, city officials decided to round up as many Richmond Hill residents as possible. A strict 8 p.m. curfew was imposed on Saturday, May 17th, to be enforced by the 400 National Guardsmen who remained in the city. The curfew would allow officers and troopers to arrest any person on the streets after the deadline. Hundreds of people were detained for curfew violations. The 17 people who had been arrested for storming the school administration building were each fined $100 and slapped with a punishment intended to regulate their behavior. They were sentenced to three years of probation, during which time they were restricted by a midnight to 7 a.m. curfew. As part of their sentence, they were ordered not to be involved in any disruptive protests or demonstrations of any kind at any place, prohibited from using any profanity, abusive language, or a language calculated to create a disturbance, and instructed to dress neatly and be clean to the satisfaction of the probation officers. School officials, hoping to head off further protests and recognizing the connection between the school uprising and the general rebellion, obtained a court order prohibiting anyone from interfering with the operation of city schools. Now only students, faculty, and staff were allowed on school grounds at any time. Mebin's family never received a formal apology from the city or the Burlington police, and there was no investigation into the fatal shooting. The mayor was real nasty to me, Zenobia Mebin remembered. He said Leon was shot down like a dog. He said it was an open and shut case. They never said one word of sympathy, not one word. The Mebins pressed for an investigation, hiring a lawyer and appealing to Governor Bob Scott, Jesse Jackson, and NAAC branches across North Carolina, but nothing came of their efforts. The police and autopsy reports are missing now, either destroyed as allowed by law or misplaced. In the train depot on Main Street in Burlington, there is a mural, painted in 1993, depicting scenes from the city's history. It evokes the rebellion of 1969, with the scene of white policemen handcuffing black men at the country grocery. Even if public memory of the rebellion lives on, the killing of a black boy by police has been largely forgotten. So has the fact that the rebellion began when black students fought for full inclusion in a high school cheerleading squad and simply to be treated with decency by their white peers. On May 21, 1969, the day after the National Guardsmen deployed to Burlington were released from duty, 650 troops were deployed just 22 miles to the west to the campus of the historically black North Carolina A&T State University at Greensboro. 
If the blacks shoot, we will treat them like an enemy, a guardsman said. When the first shots were fired, allegedly by black students, an entire infantry company responded with shooting and tear gas. As in Harrisburg and Burlington, the violence stemmed from the decision to respond to black students' grievances with force. And as in Harrisburg and Greensboro, what started as a movement to improve the educational experience of black students quickly turned into a more generalized rebellion against racism and police violence. Greensboro had been the birthplace of the sit-in movement in 1960, when four black A&T students sat down to eat at a whites-only lunch counter at Woolworths and ultimately forced the department store to end its segregationist practices. Nearly a decade later, after the height of the civil rights movement, the future promised by the victory in 1960 had not appeared. With the population of 125,000, Greensboro was nearly twice the size of Harrisburg and four times larger than Burlington. But the three cities were similar in an important way. In each city, black residents made up roughly a third of the population and endured segregated schools at the primary level, if not above as well, poor employment prospects, inadequate housing, and ongoing tensions with the police. The violence in Greensboro began in a local secondary school. The budding activist Claude Barnes, a 17-year-old junior at Greensboro's Dudley High School, ran for student council president, aiming to implement reforms at the almost all-black school. It had one white female student, run by all-black administrators, Barnes was already a powerful voice in the halls of Dudley, where he led a number of student groups, and in the larger community as well. He was a member of the Youth United for Blackness group, run by the Greensboro Association of Poor People, also called GAPP, which organized boycotts, rent strikes, and voter registration drives. During his campaign, Barnes called out the clear disparities between Dudley and Greensboro's white high schools, which boasted tennis courts, allowed students to leave campus at lunchtime, and didn't require students to follow a strict dress code. A Dudley student could get sent home for sporting an afro or wearing a dashiki, among the most popular styles at the time. Barnes called for a robust African-American studies curriculum and student input in the selection of reading materials in English and history. Dudley administrators, most of whom were black, labeled Barnes a radical who had been corrupted by outside influences. The school's election committee went so far as to exclude Barnes from the ballot on the grounds that he lacked qualifications to be a candidate for student council president. This, despite his accomplished record, and the fact that he was already serving as junior class president. The attempt to neutralize Barnes backfired. The morning of the election, May 2nd, students distributed flyers encouraging a boycott. Barnes and four others walked out in the middle of an assembly as the approved candidates delivered speeches, and the assistant principal ordered the five young men and women to leave campus for the day to prevent them from voting or interfering with the democratic process. Instead, the students walked a mile and a half north to the campus of A&T State, seeking help from some of Barnes' comrades in GAPP. Meanwhile, the election resulted in 600 write-in votes for Barnes and 200 total votes for the runner-up. 
Dudley officials refused to accept Barnes's victory, and Principal Franklin Brown, a black man, suspended the five students who walked out of the assembly. Like his white counterparts, Brown would not tolerate revolutionary black students on his campus. The Dudley students continued to organize with the A&T students, forming the Student Organization for Black Unity, also called SOBU, at the university five days after the stolen election. In their first action on May 9th, the student activists at Dudley called for a walkout, and 125 students left the school, met up with A&T students, and together returned to Dudley for a demonstration— School authorities had summoned the police, who were now waiting for the students on campus. Students who had not participated in the walkout cheered when the protest returned. As he entered the building with other demonstrators, A&T student body vice president and SOBU founder Nelson Johnson announced, On the authority of the black community in all its configuration, we install Claude Barnes Jr. as the elected student council president. The police arrested Johnson and two other A&T students on charges of disrupting a public school and disorderly conduct. Seventeen Dudley students were also arrested. Rather than creating calm, as the police and school officials hoped, the arrests only spurred on the protest. Owen Lewis, the white public relations director of the Greensboro School Board, temporarily removed Principal Brown and put himself in charge of the school. Soon enough, police were patrolling Dudley's campus in full riot gear, and shotguns were prominently displayed by officers circling the campus in their cruisers. Students met with school officials several times over the next week, and although the five suspended students were permitted to return to Dudley, the activists left every meeting even more frustrated. The administration seemed unwilling to respond to the students' demands— the only action it took was to fortify the school with police. On May 16th, 200 Dudley students walked out of class and spent the morning on the corner of the streets close to campus and in nearby Noko Park, where they reportedly met with SOBU members. At 8 o'clock on the morning of Monday, May 19th, Barnes picketed in front of the school's administration building with eight other students who formed the core group of Dudley activists— Lewis instructed the police to arrest them. The students fought back. Of course we were resisting, Barnes remembered. We were getting clubbed. High school students were getting clubbed by the police. The very public display of police aggression only recruited more Dudley students to the cause. I mean, people started joining the protest then, Barnes said. Five hundred students poured out of the school building— some of them broke windows and turned over tables in the cafeteria before leaving, while others threw bricks at police officers once outside. A number of girls tried to beat police with umbrellas, leading to the arrest of more students and several injuries on both sides. The next day, the entire school shut down as hundreds of students participated in the boycott. The black students' protests weren't going to simply fizzle out— as the North Carolina Advisory Committee to the United States Commission on Civil Rights concluded after two days of open meetings to investigate the unrest and violence, the principal and the representative of the central administration misjudged the intensity of the students' feelings and the limits to which the students were prepared to go to make their point. 
The confrontation reached its apex on Wednesday. The students started throwing rocks at the officers stationed at the school, and the cops responded by tear-gassing the entire area surrounding Dudley, hitting many students who were not involved. The protesters, all these little high school kids, bloodied, reeking of tear gas, as Barnes later described it, marched to the A&T campus. Here we were, high school students, and we were confronted with police in full riot gear, pepper gas, Barnes said. We were brutalized, basically. We were beaten, locked up. As the protesters walked through A&T and down the street, what started as a group of 25 high school and college students quickly attracted several hundred people, angered by the tainted election and the aggressive police response to student activism. A coalition had emerged, organized by young activists in the GAPP, that brought together Dudley students, A&T students, and community members. The mayor requested immediate assistance from the National Guard. Although initially the only A&T students involved were members of SOBU, police violence had had a galvanizing effect on campus, as it had among the high school student body. A message had been broadcast to A&T students on May 20th. Your lives are in mortal danger. It described police brutality in the language of black radicalism. How many of you can stomach the sight of a big, burly, redneck pig take a little black child and beat her with a three-foot nightstick, drag her by the hair in the mud and water across the ground, and throw her into a pig paddy wagon? Many Dudley students had been attacked by officers, and it was time for the police department to learn that they can't beat the black children half to death and expect nothing to be said or done. The evening of the 21st, A&T students threw rocks at cars, injuring several people. By 8 o'clock, police had established barricades to keep white residents out of the campus area. Tactical units proceeded to tear gas a group of protesters. The first report of sniper fire came two and a half hours later, at 10.35 p.m., as the National Guard was on its way. It remains unclear who fired the first shot, in this and many other rebellions. As Barnes put it, people were about not initiating any kind of offensive action, but certainly if someone attacks you, you want to repel that attack. In his view, black people armed themselves because we didn't want to be shot down like dogs. Predictably, each side claimed that the other had started the shooting. At around 1.30 the next morning, Willie Grimes, a 20-year-old sophomore who lived in a dorm at Scott Hall, decided to head out for a snack with some friends, many of whom were fellow members of the Pershing Rifles, a fraternity of Army ROTC members. Grimes hoped to join the Air Force after graduation. As the young black men walked across campus, they heard gunshots and started running, Grimes was hit in the back of his head and pronounced dead on arrival at the hospital. After Leon Mebbin in Burlington, Grimes was the second young man to die in the crossfire of police violence and rebellion in North Carolina's Piedmont Triad in the span of five days. Witnesses to Grimes' death claimed the fatal shots came from an unmarked police car. Law enforcement denied any involvement. Grimes' killing led to more violence on campus. 
It is no more wrong to kill a pig who is trying to kill you, and he is trying, than it is to eat a meal when you are hungry, proclaimed a letter from SOBU members to black A&T students that was circulated the day after Grimes' death. The shooting continued that night, with gunfire on both sides resulting in injuries to five police officers and another student, Clarence Count, who was hit in the leg. The next morning, May 23rd, the National Guard arrived on A&T's campus early, preparing to clear the Cooper and Scott dormitories as though engaged in a military operation. No one from the Guard consulted with university officials before carrying out the raid. They merely informed A&T President Louis Carnegie Dowdy of their intentions at 5.30 a.m. Their mission began at 7 a.m. First, the troops cleared Scott Hall by kicking in and shooting off doors, then throwing tear gas grenades, some of them from a helicopter. Once the students who lived there were placed in protective custody and both dormitories were secured, the guardsmen swept through rooms, allegedly taking students' personal property with them. The troops did not find the massive weapons arsenal they expected to uncover. They confiscated two guns in total. The assault caused nearly $57,000 of property damage. In the words of President Dowdy, however, the damage done to the 1,300 students who were housed in these two dormitories was immeasurable and incalculable. After the raid had concluded, the National Guard and police removed their roadblocks from the surrounding area and temporarily withdrew, but guardsmen soon returned to patrol the A&T campus for an additional two days. About a year later, on May 4, 1970, the National Guard killed four white students at Kent State University in Ohio during a protest against the expansion of the war in Vietnam, a case that drew national attention and intensified the anti-war movement, though the majority of Americans at the time sided with the Guardsmen. Eleven days later, at Jackson State, a historically black college, now University in Mississippi, State Highway Patrolman 